And ladies and gentlemen of the jury, the prosecution is not going to get that man today. No. Because I'm going to get him. Welcome, folks, to this episode of the Hagman and Hagman Report. We're coming to you live from our radio and television studios located right here in beautiful northwest Pennsylvania. That's where we broadcast live each and every weeknight, Monday through Friday, 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern Time, right here on the Global Star Radio Network. We're also simulcast by BTR. That's Blog Talk Radio, of course, as well as YouTube Live. Look, see? Right there. Are you watching us? Yeah. Don't forget, folks, we've got two separate websites, one for the show. It's Hagman and Hagman.com. There go for the show. And then, of course, for news and information, HagmanReport.com. Bookmark both, ladies and gentlemen. I'm Doug Hagman at the helm, fellow investigator researcher, and, of course, my son, Joe Hagman. Together, something I like to call America's premier father-son investigative reporting team. We do, we go to places where others refuse to, don't, won't, will not, do not. That's right. Bring you the, what the what the news is behind the news, what the uh, stuff is behind the headlines. You know, it was a great show last night, folks. Uh, Dinesh D'Souza and of course Carl Gallops, isn't that? Uh, yeah. Sorry, let's have some background. <laughs> we both got our speakers on here. So. Was that you or me? That was you, but uh, right. my speakers are on also. So let's go figure. Let's let's, fix let's it. do this together, right? No, anyway. Uh, okay. So, nothing like knocking me off my, off my, uh, train of thought. It doesn't take much, of course, but. We got a great show lined up for you tonight while you're getting your stuff together. In uh, hours two together. and three, we're gonna have author David Thomas coming hey, you're out. You don't wanna hear this guy. He is the author of Called for Life, How Loving Your Neighbor Led Us to the, Led Us Into the Heart of the Ebola Epidemic. Seal of God, as well as Remember Why You Play, which turned into a featured film, and um, featured film indeed. Yeah, yeah and in the book about the Ecola called for life, uh, the person that they write about in this book, the doctor, was the Time Magazine, uh, Time Magazine's Man of the Year. Yeah. Yeah. So we're gonna we're gonna get into that in hour two, and in this hour, we got some commentary from both myself and my father, as well as post debate analysis. Yeah, just what you want to hear, right? Post debate. <laughs> hey, have you heard enough lately? <laughs> Who won? Uh, See, we're not on video because half my hair is gone as I ripped it out, uh, realizing there was still three weeks away from the debate. Actually, Eric Eric bloodied both of us. Yeah, yeah. He threatened us not to mention the election again. Yeah. As we see people filing in, as people are filing in, uh, welcome and, and grab a seat, the best seat, uh, right there by your computer or on your phone. Of course, our app that we have. And, uh, you know, the, how many people out there right today are bummed? Do you feel bummed? Kind of a heavy spirit, maybe. I don't know. Well, um, you know, looking at the political landscape and the state of the world, it's very easy to get bummed. But if you have the proper perspective and mindset, 
<clears throat> it's hard to get bunned. Well, yeah, that, that's true. Why are you bummed out? Well, you know what? It, it's this time of year for me. It's uh, for reasons I'm not going to get into. Just uh, kind of a nah, just. Uh, so when I came uh, here to the uh, studio, you were in the corner, you know, eating lithium and crying. Dorothy, <laughs> like Tic Tacs. No, you know, it, it's just it's just one of those things. But I, I, I watched the. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm sad for I'm sad for our country. I'm sad for. The way things are, are playing out, I'm, I'm I'm sad for our, our children. I, I really am. Um, uh, I, I've got my my thoughts. Not uh, this is not a defeatist attitude. This is just a momentary. I don't know what you call it. Just a moment momentary uh, uh, feeling, if you will. I'm human, right? So I, I can feel this way. But I just don't. I, I just I, I'm, I'm bummed. I don't. I don't want to bum you guys out. So. I'm not gonna stay in that arena or stay there. Because I, I, I really, I really think. I mean, there's so much good in the world, but there's also so much crap. And it's amazing to me. What what amazes me and saddens me is, you know, how people can just. Go after other people, and so viciously. Now, I, I'm not in any way, shape, or form a pacifist. I will fight back. I will hit back. I will smack back. I will come after. You know, you come after my me or my family. I'll come after you twice as hard. Right? I mean, that's not the issue. But 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 why? You know, what's the motivation behind people? And Steve and I sometimes, we, Steve Quayle and I, we, we talk about this. You should hear some of the phone conversations we have. I mean, and some of the conversations that, that we that we carry on. It's just, you know, we, we talk about this, and, and, and then there are some really, uh, really unbelievable people out there, both good and bad. Anyway. Um, a couple of things. Let me start off by by saying this: <clears throat> the WikiLeaks. Now, I have been uh, both Joe and I have been really working hard at deciphering the WikiLeaks, uh, all of them. Coming out tomorrow is going to be an introduction, my introduction to my my, my framing of the WikiLeaks. Okay, now I'm going to give you some insight. Those people listening to the broadcast today, you're going to have a jump on things. But look, the first thing in the morning, check Hagman Report and Canada Free Press uh, tomorrow morning. And you can always comment, leave a comment on Canada Free Press. But when you look at the WikiLeaks, and having been, again, the only thing I really know how to do is... Be an investigator. I'm not a bricklayer. I'm not. I, I don't hang drywall. I suppose I could. It might not look the best, but you know, when I look at WikiLeaks, I'm reminded historically of the Pentagon Papers. The WikiLeaks, the Podesta Papers, are the Pentagon Papers of 2016. Now, now hear me out. I'm going to quote from H.R. Halderman, or Halder, yeah, H.R. Halderman from uh, 
1971, 14th of June, 1971. He said this at exactly at 3.09 p.m., according to the White House uh, tapes. And he said this to Richard Nixon. And think about this statement. <clears throat> to the ordinary guy, and this is about the, I'm sorry, this is about the, the Pentagon Papers, and I'll tell you about that in a second, for those people who don't know history, or weren't taught history or forgot or whatever. But he said this about the Pentagon Papers. He said, to the ordinary guy, all of this is a bunch of gobbledygook. That's right, he said that, gobbledygook. But out of the gobbledygook comes a very clear thing. You can't trust the government. You can't believe what they say. And you can't rely on their judgment. This is from H.R. Halderman, Chief Counsel to Nixon. No. You know, you take a brief review of history, and it effectively exposes both the rampant hypocrisy of the Clinton cabal and their supporters. You know, those those uh, goofy-eyed uh, people clapping like little monkeys in, in, in the uh, back behind uh, the Hillary, um, you know, stage. Whenever whenever Hillary's propped up, you got the you know the. Like the, you know, they should have organ grinders next to them. They're clapping and, you know, their mouths are open and they're smiling and nodding and like, like, you know, they call those dolls bobblehead dolls. But what, what this does, it does effectively expose both the rampant hypocrisy of the Clinton cabal and their supporters and reveals the complicity of the corporate media in a web of lies, cover-ups, and obfuscation to support the political progressive left at all costs. You see, at the epicenter, at the epicenter of all this is the Clinton power machine, the Clinton foundation, the Obama-Clinton foreign policy of destruction, the global power restructuring, the largest, largest transfer of wealth and largesse, and the death grip the death grip by the Clinton machine to hold power through the upcoming election. One of the biggest threats to them, of course, is WikiLeaks. But you wouldn't know it by the media, would you? Of course not. You see, the WikiLeaks disclosures present an increasingly uncomfortable situation for the political left, especially for the Clintons and their supporters. They also serve as a reminder why the corporate media is irrelevant and illustrate just how journalists of today have been castrated, co-opted by the criminal cabal of globalists. Don't you agree, folks? I mean, the media now serve as the primary propaganda arm to cover the criminality of those in power instead of uncovering it. Absolutely. And this is part of psychological warfare operations can and influence operations conducted by the United States government where they uh, detail in their own white papers the history of operation uh, influence operations influence theory influence history influence tools propaganda and counter propaganda as well as uh, information theory and strategic communication neurolinguistic programming and social and behavioral research for starters. There you go. Now, now uh, <clears throat> folks, I, I want you to compare the WikiLeaks situation to the publication of the Pentagon Papers back in 1971. A little rundown history lane here for you. <clears throat> Briefly, and for those who are unfamiliar with, with this history, the Pentagon Papers is 
it's kind of a romantic term for a 7,000 page, 47 volume top secret report titled United States hyphen Vietnam relations 1945 to 1967. A study prepared by the State Department or by the Department of Defense. Now, that's what, that's, think of this report being at the Department of Defense. This report exposed the blatant lies of multiple administrations from Kennedy to Johnson to Nixon to the American public about Vietnam, about the Vietnam War, about Laos, about Cambodia, and ultimately became an embarrassment ultimately to to the Nixon administration. So, a guy by the name of Daniel Ellsberg was working at the Pentagon. He was a military analyst employed by the Rand Corporation. And, and back in 1969, he came across this publication. And he started reading it. He said, wait a minute. Huh. Our young men are being killed over in Southeast Asia. The body count's rising. you got the government that's telling, lying to the American people, left and right. You've got this influence by the government. So what do you do? He, he started exposing. He tried to expose this corruption. He, 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 so he, he took the Pentagon Papers in 69 and copied them. You see, he did not inconvenience electrons by emailing them. He could have probably, right? No, no, of course not. There was no AOL account or there was no at Clinton email, you know, accounts back then. So we copied him. This is in 69. And and he was looking for a place to, looking for a journalist, journalist, uh, media people to, to, to cover this. Saying, look, I've got smoking gun evidence that we're being lied to as a country. By Nixon, by Johnson, by the, by the military industrial complex. And, and, and we're losing lives. And we're, see, the, the, we're, we're not fighting this war the way the war should be fought. It, it's, it's a losing proposition, the rules of engagement. Does this, any, any of this sound familiar to today? Mm-hmm. Okay. Alright. But you see these documents. Excerpt, excerpted from the 7,000 page, 47 volume top secret report. The excerpts were copied. And uh, later became known as the Pentagon Papers. They were actually celebrated by the political left as they laid bare the lies coming from the Oval Office and other key officials elected and appointed. All right. So Ellsberg leaked the documents to the New York Times. And and I'm just going to give you a quick overview here. It's important. It's important. So Ellsberg leaked the documents to the New York Times, which began publishing the more explosive excerpts as front page news back starting on June 12, 1971. So the paper boy throws the paper on the White House, you know, west, uh, west wing there. Nixon in his bathrobe goes out and picks up, you know, the papers, the New York Times, Washington Post, and all that, and looks, opens up the Times, and says, Oh, man. <laughs> Looky, looky here. Kissinger said, hey, hey Dick, uh, close your bathrobe. Right, anyway, right, but I digress. 
See, I got a bit of a history teacher, right? What do you think? <laughs> anyway, yeah. No, uh, uh, hold on. See, it gets better. Okay, N- not the Nixon bathrobe thing, but it gets better. Thank you, Eric. So N- Nixon's reading about stuff that his Defense Department commissioned in the newspaper, in the New York Times. And, and, you know, he spits out coffee through his nose, man. He calls Kissinger. Hey, Henry, pray with me, buddy. (laughs) We got a problem. Well, that was June 12th, 1971. Of course, this embarrassed, in a sense, Nixon and his cabal of globalists, including Kissinger, of course, and then Attorney General John Mitchell. You remember that character, right? Oh, <laughs> John Mitchell. His wife, Joni Mitchell. What'd she sing? No, wrong Mitchell. I'm sorry. Um, anyway, John Mitchell. By the way, Mitchell, Attorney General John Mitchell, what did he do? He quickly sought and obtained a federal court injunction to prevent further publication of, of, the, of the Pentagon Papers. All right. We shut up the New York Times. We shut them up. Well, the New York Times fought back. And essentially, well, they were ultimately joined by the Washington Post, which began its own coverage. And after a flurry of court maneuvers, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled on January 30th. Now, think about that. Two weeks later, roughly, or three weeks, two and a half weeks, three weeks, that the government could not. They, You can't stop the releases. You can't do that, Dick. Hank, John, you can't do that. You you get you just gotta. No, you can't do that. Well, now some things never change because when the when the leaks became legally unstoppable, what do you think they did? <laughs> I mean, this is good. This is good. See, Nixon, Halderman, and company, Kissinger. G. Gordon Liddy, remember G. Gordon Liddy, Howard D. Any of these names ringing bells? Anybody? All right. What do you think they did they, when when the when the Supreme Court said, "Nah, sorry guys, ain't gonna happen. You're not gonna shut down the presses." Well, here's what they did. They assembled the the the, the, the criminal cabal within the globalist network assembled. A secret group known as the Plumbers. Well, they were already kind of assembled, but that's what they were called. And what do Plumbers do? They stop leaks, right? So they couldn't... These numbskull criminal CIA operatives, at at the behest of Nixon, they couldn't stop the, the, you know, they couldn't stop the papers from, excuse me, from publishing the, uh, the documents. So what'd they do? They decided to, to look into Ellsberg, and they found, oh, wait a minute, Ellsberg. Now he, you know what? He he he's receiving. Uh, uh, he he goes in for uh, 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 therapy sessions. You know, he sees he sees a psychiatrist. Of course, you work for the federal government. I guess I guess you should, probably should, with deference to the good people there. Anyway. <clears throat> So Liddy and company and the CIA people, at the behest of uh, the Nixon administration, not the, the, the criminal cabal of CIA operatives known as the Plumbers, they break into Ellsberg's psychiatrist's office. 
Lewis Fielding was his name, and busted open the file cabinets looking for the file on Daniel Ellsberg. Why? Because they they wanted to paint him as a mentally unstable, crazy conspiracy theorist. My, how things never change. That's right. Huh. So, actually, the break-in was orchestrated through the members of the CIA and was titled Hunt slash Liddy Special Project Number 1. It failed to produce any such documentation, so... But, but here's here's the uh, takeaway. Compare the Pentagon Papers in 1971 to WikiLeaks of today. Documents, the former in hard copy, you know, the old mimeograph machine, and the latter digital, just a bunch of electrons inconvenienced, were illicitly obtained but served the purpose of exposing government lies and corruption. It's, it's interesting that the operational handbook in my view, is nearly identical identical to what we're witnessing today. The criminal element within the government lies to the people they are supposed to serve. They're a bunch of liars. Behind that evil smirk of Hillary Clinton is nothing but lies. The operational similarities between the rogue operations element within the next administration of the current Washington regime, in my view, are remarkable. The differences are equally remarkable for the media, who was once fighting to expose, and and you can argue this, the the damning information, regardless of intent, have now become servants to the tyrannical globalist powers. As the narrative has been revised, thanks to a compliant media, the criminal cabal cabal has gained followers in the form of a public who, in equal parts, appear to be ap- apathetic or deluded. Now, it's this group I mentioned that can be seen dutifully nodding like, you know, bobbleheads and clapping like the organ-grinding monkeys at, their, at the deflections rather than succinct answers to legitimate questions that Hillary Clinton and her staff offer the swooning public. Of course, you don't answer questions. Donna Brazil, you know, the head of the uh, DNC, when approached about the WikiLeaks, the Podesta uh, WikiLeaks, and, and how? How in the world, Donna? She was asked, "How could you possibly know a debate question before it was even asked before the debate?" Donna says, "Well, wait a minute. Wait, you ain't gonna be persecuting me. <laughs> no, 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 no. You, ain't, you don't be persecuting me. You see." You can't prove to me that the, you can't prove, oh, I got yes, my records, can. I got my records, you can't prove that the, you can't prove! How about her own words? Wait, oh, Hey, oh, they wait, feed oh. me the questions early. No, 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 see, no, I didn't, you can't prove that I wrote that, you can't prove I wrote that. No, 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 no. You see, what remains constant is that lies are still lies and truth is still truth. The criminality of these people, the globalists of all stripes, have been emboldened by the complicity of the media. Hillary Clinton and her cabal of criminal cronies have copied the playbook of the same people they claim to have once detested. Assange, in my view, is the present-day Ellsberg, without media assistance in this case. In fact, he's the enemy of the media. He's anti-media. And, and according to the globalists, he must be stopped, and the disclosures must be buried. The leaks must be plugged. The modern-day plumbers. Her own words. From time to time, I get the questions in advance. The email subject was titled in a letter written from Brazil, delivered to 
the Podesta's Gmail account. And the email uh, is about a paragraph long. And it goes on to talk about, um, you know, the, how the death penalty is a subject that worries Brazier, uh, Brazil about Hillary Clinton's response to it. What a putz. And then goes hey, on to Brazil's say... Give me Brazil's phone number. Let's get her on the phone. Oh, we can get it. Let's we get her on the phone. And, and I want her to answer the question. Not deflect, but answer the question. And one of the main um, points of her argument trying to say, well, this isn't true, is her claim that this information is false, that the emails are doctored. So Russians. The Russians are coming. Oh, yeah, the Russians. The Russians. Uh, okay, well, now no, hold on. See, again, <clears throat> Hillary Clinton and her cabal of criminal cronies have copied the playbook of the same people they have claimed they claimed to have once detested. And I say again, Assange is a present-day Ellsberg. Without the media assistance, he must be stopped. The disclosures must be buried. Those who propagate the information within the documents must be marginalized or silenced in any way necessary. And notice that steps have been taken already, and some very effectively. Now, as we get to the close of the bottom of the hour, just let me explain something here, because on the flip side here, it's something very important. Uh, But the importance of the information contained in these leaked documents cannot be understated. They lay bare the nuts and bolts of an out-of-control globalist regime that has captured the branches of our government and identify These papers identify the co-conspirators and the takeover of our nation from within. And unlike, well, unlike the Pentagon Papers, the critical information from these documents won't be researched, they won't be made public by the corporate media, they're only going to be downplayed, and their legitimacy question, as in the case of Donald Brazil, as in the case of Hillary Diane Rodham Clinton, as in the case of all of the globalists that are behind this, including some of the Republicans and so-called conservatives, and even the journalists. If you're a journalist out there and you're not paying attention to this, shame on you, you're no journalist at all. Censorship of the truth is in full swing. The new alternative media has become the new target of the modern-day plumbers. Let me explain that when on the other side, but understand this. It's gotten serious. It's gotten serious. Censorship of the truth is in full swing, and if you are, if you have the truth, if you possess the truth, you are a target. You are a leak. And the plumbers are after you, the modern-day plumbers. And they ain't carrying wrenches. They ain't carrying duct tape. Well, they may be carrying duct tape, but not for the reasons that you think. You're listening to the Hagman and Hagman Report. Follow us on Facebook, Hagman Report, Twitter, at Hagman Report. Of course, websites, HagmanandHagman.com and HagmanReport.com. We're going to be right back. Stay right where you're at. Coming at you at full throttle. Make sure your seatbacks and tray tables are in their full upright and locked position. We're coming at you. That's right, giving you information, inspiration. Next segment, we're gonna have uh, we're gonna have a Joe. We're gonna have. It's, it's we your are cue. going to have David <laughs> Thomas, author David Thomas. He's the author of several books. 
uh, seal of God. The path is narrow, but the reward is great. Ken and Amber Brantley with David Thomas called for life. How loving our neighbor led us into the heart of the Ebola epidemic and faith football and a season to believe the book. Remember why you play, which ended up being a feature film. And in hour three, um, one of the main uh, characters the book is written on, or it's a nonfiction book, so one of the main people the book's about, Jordan will be joining us to talk about his experiences in all this. So it's going to be great. Can't wait. Now, right before the break, we're talking about uh, my comparison between the WikiLeaks and the Pentagon Papers from 1971. If you missed it, go back and listen to it. It's educational, informative, and somewhat entertaining, too, because I had Nixon in a bathrobe getting the paper from the... Ouch. Getting the paper from the uh, uh, White House lawn, and the, you know, the paper always throws it in the sprinklers, and he gets all wet and stuff. And Anyway, <clears throat> learning about the uh, leak in the New York Times, June 12, 1971, was the date. But see, and, and of course, what did they do? Just to recap this, what did Nixon, Halderman, Kissinger, the globalists do? You know, they, 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 they assembled a CIA criminal cabal posse kind of sort of, called the plumbers, and... Um, uh, went to stop the leak. They assailed the sanity of Daniel Ellsberg. Of course, he's still living, by the way. And, uh, uh, it, it was a mess. It was, it was, it was a hor- horrendous mess. And of course, they took it to court to try to stop the leaks and the, the publishing in the papers, uh, New York Times. And, and this is when the New York Times and the journalists, this is when they had, uh, uh some modicum of, uh, of, of, of semblance that they were journalists, you see. Uh, but but now that, again, I can see where that could be argued. I, I understand. I, I understand both sides of this. But at least they were doing something instead of saying, "Oh, you're a bunch of conspiracy nuts." You know. Gee. So you, you see that. My daughter just said something. She walked into the studio. What? She she just confirmed that we are conspiracy. You want the you want the mic? You can have the mic. You want to say it? It's not really a conspiracy theory if. The theories yeah. you talk about become truth. I love conspiracy theories. Well, wait, you gotta get closer to that, because <laughs> I, you gotta get clo- no, seriously, you gotta get closer, because I didn't hear that. Debuting for the microphone, Jacqueline Hagman. All I said was, I love conspiracy theories, so send them our way. Alright. This is my daughter, Jackie. What a, what a great girl. If the she theory is. is true, is it still a conspiracy? Anything Disney related, send them our way. Anything <laughs> Disney related, she said. Alright. But, but, but here's the serious part of this, because it's, it's damn serious, folks. It's critically important right now for you to understand just how dangerous this situation has become. Look, look at Assange. Oh, Kerry goes over to London. He's, Assange is in the basement of the uh, Ecuadorian um, um, embassy there, where he's been for the last four years. Under threat, of course, he walks out. He's going to get arrested for, uh, 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 sex crimes. Okay. Now, you might say, well, they're true. He should be arrested. Whatever. Well, now, hold on a minute. Or if you're Bob Beckel, he should be droned. Oh, yeah, droned. Right. But, but, but hold on a second. Didn't, isn't this something that we saw back in the 70s when they, when they attempted to, to pin something on Ellsberg? 
I'm not saying it's the same. I'm just asking the question. So before we start spouting off of, of the guilt or activities of Assange, let's just think about this for a minute. But anyway, that aside, and, and you, you, people can debate that all day long, that aside, does that change the investigative work product or the work product that has been displayed, laid out, the information that has the thousands upon thousands of pages that has been have been laid out with the lies and the proof of governmental corruption in the form of the WikiLeaks, the Podesta files, the embarrassing stuff, the the criminal stuff? Does that change that information, or or in the words of Donald Brazil, they done change the you know. From the Russians, it's stolen material and whatever else might have float float in you know in into her head. No, but here's 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 the problem. You've got to understand those of us out here who are attempting to compile, assemble, publish, and 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 provide connected dots on the on the WikiLeaks papers. Are, are staring down the gun of some, well, staring down some asymmetrical methods to silence us. They've weaponized, the globalists have weaponized the various arms of the federal government from the regulatory to the enforcement agencies to silence truth tellers. And if you don't think that's true, I don't know what to tell you. Because, uh, and there are individuals backed by groups who are doing just, just exactly that. There are individuals out there posing as, oh, little old bloggers, you know, doing this and doing that, and, you know, they're not who they say they are. Now they're being paid. They're being funded. They're being organized. They're being supported by some pretty serious people. So, time for all of you who are assembling this stuff to watch when you let your dog out. I mean, literally, let your dog out, or 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 when you. Or, or when you go to the store, you watch what you put on your computer, or don't put on your computer. You watch, you make sure that your bank account is, you're not doing anything funny with your bank account, or, you know, by accident, hidden behind that smirk, that rab, that, that, that smirk of Hillary, Diane Rodham Clinton is a rabid determination to re, to retain their grip, Hillary Bill, and the globalists all around uh, on power, on influence, and wealth, most importantly wealth. Today, they've increased their allies and foot soldiers from the corporate media to nearly every branch of government. Those searching the truth are the targets. The prize in the balance is the fate of our nation. We're despicable. We're deplorable. Or conspiracy kooks, and Joe had a, uh, a posting on HagmanReport.com where he said, where he, where he pointed out where Hillary Clinton, when when approached by O'Keefe's video, see, this is another thing that we have done 
as investigators, we've taken covert audio and video where permitted by law under pretext. Oh, of course, under pretext, that's a non-Christian thing to do, right? No. 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 Into the individual who said that. Just like police officers. You're a contemptible, contemptible, miserable human being. Just like police officers use false pretenses in order to gather information when conducting investigations, it is perfectly legal for private investigators uh, to do the same. And that's right. But but see now, the, Joe, what did what did what did what, when confronted with O'Keefe and the Democratic? Uh, hey, we're going to start riots and hurt people and, and steal votes and all that. That Bob Creamer and, uh, uh, what was it, Stephen Fovel. When confronted with that. They both stepped down. Yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. Up. Yeah. They both stepped down. Of course, they're not guilty of anything. They just did so out of, out of respect for the Democratic Party. What? <laughs> on the aircraft, on the airplane, on, on, on Hillary's private uh, flying penthouse. Yeah, now after okay. the debate, there was a press conference given uh, to the Clinton press corps on her plane. Now, Hillary Clinton was asked about the James O'Keefe video and asked about the uh, what she thought uh, as post-debate questions in a press conference held by Hillary Clinton were answered. Reporters questioned uh, about the debate and a number of other things. Hillary made some remarks on a number of different issues, yet continues to show she has no plans on how to improve the divided nation. Nation. During the interview, she said a number of misleading and false statements. One of these statements, Clinton was asked about the Project Veritas James O'Keefe video showing DNC operatives bragging about and triggering violence at Donald Trump rallies. She, uh, since the release of those damaging videos, two of the people caught bragging on tape have been let, let go by the Clinton administration. Her response to the question should help people understand her constant lying along with the claims of ignorance when it pertains to scandals that are damaging to her. Um, her response uh, when asked about uh, how these... Uh, Operatives coordinated through the Clinton campaign, you know, did she know, did she have something to do with it? Her response was, I know nothing about this, and I can't deal with every one of these conspiracy theories. What a bunch of crap. What a load of crap. Conspiracy theories. No, and these aren't the first time. Uh, during her, uh, the Bill Clinton sexual, um, allegations when he was president that what led to his impeachment, she referred to the scandals as a vast right-wing conspiracy, using the same tactics when talking right, about her husband's sexual scandals as uh, she did talking about her own Clinton campaign scandals, inciting violence to the point where it did shut down a Trump rally in Chicago, in Cleveland. They talk about in using Chicago. homeless people. Uh, yeah, in Chicago. They talk about using the homeless people. That's right. They talk about hiring <laughs> the mentally disabled. Of they talked about setting up shell corporations in order to funnel money through the Clinton campaign, Clinton Foundation, to these shell corporations in order to pay for uh, these agitators to come here to the rallies and commit violence. Yep. They have even, the, the records were released, financial records were released, that showed how people were flown, put up in hotels, flown to the city from where they lived, put in hotels, uh, given 
up to $1,600 on top of that as payment for what they did at the rally. With the whole purpose of um, having people dress up as Trump supporters and commit acts of violence against those opposed to Trump to create the public perception that Trump's rhetoric is dangerous and that being a part of his rallies and his campaign uh, is tantamount to being violent. Yeah, exactly. So we are fighting this this stigma, this stain, of course, of uh, what what is known as conspiracy theories. One thing Donald Trump has done is is advance the legitimacy of of these. Uh, he's elevated what uh, what some would call conspiracy theories into the mainstream, and it's interesting to me that that um, that people still believe, or, or that people believe. Period. That um, the you know. The, the comebacks, for example, on Clinton. Well, she's been under investigation for 30 years. Why do you think that is? Because she's been a criminal for the last 30 years. But see, you know, it's, 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 for example, the State Department, when she was with the Department of State, you realize they did not have an inspector general, you know, the person that, that oversees the events of the State Department. So it goes to the Attorney General. Well, what happens there? Well, of course, when the Attorney General is bought off, who do you complain to? It's like, it's like living in, in a, in a, in a township where your township police force is compromised and, and you, and you go to make a complaint against the, uh, you know, the ruling family of the township. You're not going to get any, any uh, relief, of course. Well, this is, this is that on a larger scale. So you are, and the her supporters turn around, and for whatever reason, whether they're just mentally disabled, impaired, otherwise deluded, or if they're just naive, I don't know what. I don't know. Um, you know, they'll they'll say, "Oh well, you know, uh, thirty years worth of investigations, they found nothing." Well, of course not. When you control the investigation, you control the outcome. How stupid yeah. do you you know? So, and you're telling me that someone in government service can walk into, I mean, the proof is in the lifestyle. You walk into government service, and, and how much do you get paid as a president? I don't know. I don't know what the current salary is, but it's $220,000, I believe. I, I, I don't know what it is currently, but, but you know what? It doesn't matter. And, and you walk out of there, um, and, and you become, you know, a, a multi-billionaire. How does that happen? Okay, does it happen legally? Because you're you you're an author and your books sell and you go out on the book circuit and speaker's circuit. Well, sure, some people do go out in the speaker's circuit and they tra- they charge uh, fees, but not pay to play is in 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 Clinton's position. But see, it, the Americans, the American people don't want to hear that. Now, of course, the debates last night was very quick. Oh, before we get into the debates, I, folks, do me a favor. Do me a favor. Do me a solid, everybody. I gotta stop saying that. Hmm. Um, what was it at at Real Tech? At, at, uh, Real Tech Eric, yeah. Real Tech Eric on Twitter. Real Tech Eric on Twitter. Everyone got that? Real Tech Eric on Twitter. It, he's he's made some amazing graphics and grabbed some amazing graphics. Uh, available for ret- retweet. Let's flood the Twitter sphere. It's not a money thing. No, it's not. Eric just said not a money thing. Why not? No. Tell me again. 
Real Tech Eric. Real Tech Eric. Real Tech Eric. So go out there and, and, and spread the, uh, the, the, I was looking at some of the pictures. My goodness, they're funny. Sad. Sadly true, but funny. Disturbing, but funny nonetheless in a twisted sort of way. So yeah, we have an office pool to see how long Eric the Tech's, Real Tech Eric's page is going to stay up, uh, on Twitter. So let's see if you can, don't cause it. I mean, don't complain about it, but, but go ahead and, and retweet his tweets if you have a Twitter account. And, uh, it's, uh, of course, it's, it's fun. So, uh, I've got Tuesday in the pool when, when, when the Twitter, when his Twitter account will be banned because of offensive material. And it's not offensive, it's true. Sad, but true. So we'll see what happens. So get out there and go ahead and retweet. That's Real Tech Eric on Twitter. Retweet. And I want to thank, publicly thank John Robertson. John, thank you so much. I don't know if you're listening, but if you are, thank you so much. You've, you've done so, such great work. Um, he was the engine behind many of Evil Tonight's guests and many of the guests that, that we've had, uh, scheduling. He's worked very hard mm-hmm. at, at uh, coordinating people's schedules. And he's got, Which is, uh, I mean, that's a heck of a job. Not only that, he's got a great lineup in through the next few weeks, uh, with new guests and, uh, very interesting subject matter that we're going to hear from these new people and we're going to hear some brand new subject matter from these new people and it's going to be really good um, I'm really looking forward to it and again thank thank you John for all you have done absolutely and, and folks have you done it yet have you gone have you gone to uh, uh, have you gone to T, uh, this generation series of novels have you gone there folks T.C. Joseph this generation series of novels. In this thrilling series of novels, T.C. Joseph takes us into the lives of three families in a world where conspiracy theories and Bible prophecies collide. T.C. novels moves, well, it, 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 they take you right through recent history to, to the events that are just on her, our horizon. And, and read them fast because these events are coming quickly. Uh, T.C. Joseph's, his witty style and fascinating characters provide a great read. Not only will you love these books as I do, but they can be a great tool to awaken friends and family members to the perilous times we face. Now, I actually have given a set of these books, two actually, um, out, and it, 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 they've done wonders. Um, actually, people love the books, and, and the message is great. Now, Kirkus Reviews states that, and I quote, readers of end times fiction will be hard-pressed to find it done more intriguingly, intriguingly than this, Extremely readable and fast-paced. Blue Ink Reviews calls this thought-provoking series absolutely riveting. Folks, get your copies of T.C. Joseph's This Generation series on Amazon.com today. Book one is Precipice, book two, Pentecost, and coming soon, Penance, book three. Just want to say thank you to all, to T.C. Joseph and to all of our sponsors for supporting our show. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen, for supporting our program as well. We do our best to bring you the truth as quickly and as efficiently as possible. We hope to never let you down, at least not intentionally. And we want to expose these globalists. We want to fight. That's our, that's our calling using, uh, using, well, using our abilities to expose the darkness and to fight against the, against what we're seeing take place here in America. Now, one thing I noticed about 
and globally. One thing I noticed about the debate last night, folks, I don't know whether you saw this or not. No one commented on this. I've seen nothing on this, but did you watch Huma? <laughs> Huma. Did you watch Huma? Uh, did you watch Hillary Clinton? First of all, Hillary kind of worked the crowd after the debate last night. Donald Trump left, but Hillary worked the crowd. Now, uh, I, you, you, when you, when I was watching Hillary, I was watching her body language. Okay, I was watching Huma's body language too. Huma was really, really like super concerned, in my view, about getting Hillary the heck out of there. Overly concerned. Overly concerned. And the more I watched, I was waiting for Hillary to, something to happen. Because Huma, it just, it was, Huma, of course, Muslim Brotherhood Huma. You know. Hillary's body person. But anyway, I was waiting for something to happen. There was something there. And then, of course, um, well, I don't know how many people saw that or think that that's important, but I think that's important. I really do. And a couple, I think, uh, speaking about the debates, however, I do believe that uh, that Donald Trump probably uh, squandered a couple of good opportunities. Um, uh, you know, I'm not going to. I'm not going to. Look, you know, I don't know if I could withstand a debate. I suppose I could. Uh, I'd have to hold and check my desire to, you know, walk across the stage and slap them, somebody. Huh. Slap. I have to, you know, make a general neutral, so. I don't know. It, it's just, um, I'm looking at, and the characterization is that America would be, <clears throat> in my view, much greater uh, and, and much more dangerous with Trump. To me, is ludicrous. I, I don't believe that to be the case. You've got checks and balances, or at least that's what you should have, even at the worst case scenario. But I do believe that um, I, I'm, I'm getting the feeling that Election Day is going to see, now, again, I'm going to say this. And, and I hope I'm wrong. I'm not wishing for this. I'm just gonna, and, and I'm not fatalistic about it. But I'm just getting the feeling that Hillary at this point is going to waltz in with the with the win. And and by the way, the, Trump, in my view, you know, when question about the, are you going to concede if 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 it's a Hillary win? I, I think it was implied. If there, you know, uh, even if in the in the event there were some. Irregularities. I think that was implied in that question, but and I think that was that should have been he should have clarified that because I I can't see him saying, you know, if if it's a clear victory on Clinton's part, I I can't see him holding things up by contesting it. What good would that do anyway? But I think it was implied on his part. But I do believe that the system is rigged, and I think it's all on the electoral uh, college and I and as well. But I'm. Uh, I'm hearing things too from if in in case in the event of a Hillary win, I'm hearing things from the military that uh, there might be some people getting out of the military. Um, I, I don't know. I just I but I I do see a Hillary victory 
barring, I mean, if, if the elections were held tomorrow, I, I would see a Hillary victory. And I would see this false, uh, you know, celebratory mood by these mind-numbed idiots out there. Um, and, and really, the destruction of America to follow. Mm-hmm. I mean... And, and uh, I wanted to ask this one question. That black guy, that big black guy, do we ever identify the, him? Yeah, and, and his name escapes me at the moment. Obunga, but the DBDB... But he has not been seen. He was seen yesterday. He was oh, out, okay. he's out bopping around her. Around oh, there, there you go. But my question is, okay, so who is he? He is a... Who is he? Handler... Uh, slash doctor. No, I, I, but okay. People, and I get emails. Oh, he's a Secret Service agent. Well, all right. I want to know who he is. I don't want you to tell me who you think he is. I don't want something. I, I want to. I want. I want to know verification here. That's all. But I saw him yesterday, and and uh, you just got to wonder too. He's got that. He's got that look on his look in his eyes that you know he's expecting something like you know. Something's not right here with with Hillary. Obviously, we know that. But anyway, all right. So there we have it. Uh, the WikiLeaks. We are getting into that deeply. Watch Hagman report tomorrow. I've got my report coming out on on what what I spoke about in the first hour. You can comment on that at CanadaFreePress.com. Joe's got other things coming out at Hagman Report, of course, of course. Follow us on our social networking as well. Just go to hagman.hagman.com and you'll find our social networking uh, sites there. Coming up, next segment. David Thomas. Absolutely. You're going to want to stick around for this, folks. You're listening to the Hagman and Hagman Report. We're going to be right back. Stay right where you're at. Full throttle. That's right. Saddle for battle, people. I think we're going to need to, don't you? Saddle for battle, indeed. I want to thank everyone for joining us. Thank you so much for your belief and your trust in us. We've got listeners all over the country, all over the world, listening live right now from uh, all across Europe. Or it's late or early, I guess, right? depending on your outlook. And uh, North America, South America, Central America. Panama. Hello, Panama. Thanks for tuning in. And uh, Canada as well. It'll great listening base in Canada, too. Thank you so much for tuning in. Folks, Green Innovative, it's a small company in Florida. They've created GMAG Power Cell that produces electricity by adding salt water to the unit. You can watch the commercial during uh, uh, during our breaks. The newest development of uh, Green Innovative is the Super GMAG battery recharger with replaceable magnesium power bucks. GMAG, Super GMAG charger will charge six AA or AAA rechargeable batteries in about three hours, over 20 times per pair of power bucks. you got to see this product, man. It's great. You don't need the sun. You don't need the wind. You don't need a hand crank. All you need is a little ordinary table salt, two te- teaspoons is all. 
a little water, shake it for a few seconds, and the unit instantly makes electricity. I should have paid more attention in, in science, man. Uh, using magnesium as a power source, just adding salt water makes power instantly available. Folks, you got to see this. Super GMAG charger, charger is affordable, lightweight, weighs about 8 ounces. It's durable, EMP-proof, environmentally friendly. It'll just put a smile on your face, even when you don't have one. That's right. Super GMAG charger. Well, I'm just kidding about that. It's going to provide a convenient and safe power for rechargeable, uh, recharging six AA batteries off the grid, uh, or, or when other power sources are not available anywhere, anytime, in any weather, day or night, folks. Go to HagmanReport.com, Hagman and Hagman.com. Click on that link to Green Innovative. That's right. Grab yourself. This is a necessity for your, your, your prep supplies, your bug out bag. I have a feeling that we are going to need every prep we can get our hands on. You're innovative. That's right. Super GMAG battery charger. Go to Hagman.com. Click on the link directly to Green Innovative. Do it today. We have with us uh, a first-time guest of the Hagman and Hagman Report. His name is David Thomas. He is the author of uh, several books. We're going to get into some of these tonight. He is the author. Um, he is an author of a number of books we have right in front of us, uh, called for Life: How Loving Our Neighbor Led Us Into the Heart of the Ebola Epidemic, as well as Seal of God. And one of the ones that we're going to be focusing on tonight is Remember Why You Play. Uh, David Thomas is a senior writer and sports columnist for the Fort Worth Star-Telegram, a lifelong Texan and graduate of the University of Texas at Arlington. He lives near Fort Worth, Texas, with his family and his wife and children. Uh, David, it's great to have you on the Hagman and Hagman Report. Great. Appreciate you having me. We appreciate being appreciated. (laughs) <laughs> just, and I'll, I'll give you a break from talking politics and debate. How about that? <laughs> sounds good. Very welcome. You've got you've got some good stuff. You've got Thank you. and this is a, this is amazing, folks. Um, well, you know what? I'm going to go ahead, because, folks. Listen, because this guest, I mean, well, you're going to be amazed. But by the end of his appearance, you're going to be saying, "Wow." Like I yeah. was, and and let's let's let uh, Mr. Thomas get into it. Where do you want to start tonight, uh, Mr. Thomas? Uh, not on the debate. How about that? We'll make a we'll make a little pact with you. I'm, <laughs> I'm about talked out from that today, and I heard uh, heard you last hour, and I think you're kind of tired of it too by this point. So we need oh, something yeah. cheerful. We have let's talk about some good stories, I guess. Um, which, which 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 book would you like to discuss first? I think um, Seal of God might be a good one to start with. That's a you, you um, know, that's a very interesting book, very interesting story. I I I especially love, and I'm glad you brought that up because that's I don't want to say my favorite, but if I could pick one out to start with, yes, let's start with Seal okay. of God. Um, okay. Now you've worked with just a, a interesting variety number of authors and i'm sure you've yeah, taken quite a mix oh, you you have um but but i'm gonna let you yeah we're gonna let you start i mean from a book standpoint you know that this is it, well describe the book just go ahead and, and start and we're, we're gonna interject where we feel we should how's that okay yeah i wrote this book with chad williams he is a um a former Navy SEAL. 
Um, he has a uh, really fascinating story. Uh, he grew up a little daredevil, willing to try anything, didn't mind getting into trouble. Uh, and he made his goal to become a SEAL. And um, the short version of it, and we can come back and pick up the details, but the short version is that uh, he made it through uh, but made it through Hell Week. Uh, he, he got his trident and became a SEAL. And while he was in the Navy SEALs, he became a Christian, completely turned his life around instantly. And that created a little bit of trouble for him. He had some problems with some of his brothers who uh, didn't like the fact that he had converted and were kind of afraid that um, the, the things they did after hours would get told. And so he had to pay a little price for that among his brotherhood. Uh, but he did stay in the SEALs for a few years. Uh, he served time in um, see, the Philippines. And um, uh, I'm trying to think where all he was. I know he finished up in Iraq, and he's in Saudi Arabia some. But he did time in Iraq and in Fallujah. He was actually in combat there. And um, he stayed in the SEALs and just felt like um, because of the life change that had taken place that he needed to go a different direction in his life. So when his time was up with the SEALs, uh, he got into ministry. Uh, he's associated with uh, Greg Laurie in California. So um, that was the uh, pastor that preached a sermon in which he decided to give his life to Christ. And so since leaving the SEALs, he's become a speaker, traveling around, talking to different places, churches, um, military functions, uh, Memorial Day, Veteran Days, all types of things, those types of uh, events. Um, he, is, he is a, as a lot of SEALs are, He's about 150% when he does something. <laughs> he does uh, not, yeah, um, yep. he doesn't tap the brake very often in his life. And once he became a Christian, his 150% was completely toward uh, God and sharing the gospel message of Christ and trying to lead as many people as he can to make the conversion that he had made. You, you know, one of, the, one of the things I liked uh, when, I picked, when, I first picked, when I first picked up the book, Seal of God, the subtitle of the path is narrow and the reward is great. This, uh, uh, of course, Chad Williams with David Thomas. We're talking with David Thomas, the author. Uh, the, the first sentence I read, God shapes his men with the hammer of adversity and the chisel of discipline. How true is that? Yeah, and, I think you probably lived it, I'm guessing. I think most of us have, yeah. Yeah, you know, absolutely. Now, um, just to be clear, this is a story of a just a, a, a tough, Rough and tumble young guy. Um, well, you know, I'll let you tell the story about Chad Williams realized his dream of becoming a Navy SEAL. I mean, and, and as you said, man, you know, he 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 did. He went through the training. He he made it. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah, so. and he he grew up. Um, well, I guess you'd call him an unfocused kid. Uh, you know, he wasn't quite focused in class, and he liked to be mischievous and get out and cause a little trouble and have a little fun, I guess, uh, a little mischievous fun. Um, but he didn't really have a direction that he was headed. And, um, you know, again, being a 150% or nothing guy, once he decided to become a Navy SEAL, that was it. I mean, that was what his life completely re- revolved around. And he was able to hook up with uh, Scott... Scott Helvinston, uh, who people may not recognize the name, but in 2004, he had been oh, captured yes. in Iraq and burned and hung from a bridge in Fallujah. Yep. Um, so and, that was And his folks, remember mentor. that. I, I, Mr. Trump, I, I apologize. I just want people oh, to no remember problem. this. You know, if you don't remember this, the um, I mean, I, when, I, when I was reading this book, when that came up, I, I remember this. I remember seeing this, these images on television 
Um, they, they were only on briefly, but that was of U.S. Navy SEAL Scott Halverson. He was brutally murdered in, in, in this ambush in Fallujah, on the streets of Fallujah. Now, now his buddy Chad, of course, he was committed to, he was committed to, well, you go ahead and continue. But I just, again, folks, remember sure. that name. Go ahead. Yes, Scott had become a mentor to him before he went uh, and went back to Iraq. So as um, Chad was making this his uh, dream to become a SEAL, uh, Scott was the person who took him under his wings, helped him do the training, because, uh, um, as you well know, the uh, the physical demands to become a SEAL, much less be one, are incredible. And so he had Scott Helveston, one of the, you know, a SEAL SEAL to many people, um, helping him physically and mentally prepare for that. So as he was training, uh, Scott went back to Iraq, and Chad uh, turns on the TV one day and sees those images of his mentor hanging from a bridge, body burned, um, and just, you know, it's even, as a person who works with words, it's hard to describe the emotions that stirred up within him, seeing his mentor uh, like that. And so he became bound and determined that whatever it was going to take, he was going to make it through SEAL training. And he entered um, in his BUDS class. He was one of 173. And of that class of 173, 13 made it straight through. And he was one of those 13. Yeah, and he went on to, uh, to serve on SEAL teams, what, one in seven, I think, right? Correct, uh, one in seven, yes. Yeah. All right. And and, and uh, he went through um, tours of duty in the Philippines and Saudi Arabia, Bahrain, and mm-hmm. as you had mentioned, of course, in Iraq, finally. All right. Mm-hmm. Yes. Hmm. Okay. And, and, folks, this is a great book. Again, the book we're talking about is Seal of God, Chad Williams with David Thomas as the uh, author. So go ahead, sir. Sure. And actually, one the, just a little side, one of the interesting things about this book is, you know, you see the title and you hear what it's about, and you think, you know, this is a man's man's book. And when the publisher, Kendall House, first got the manuscript in and started working on it, the uh, first groupers, they, first group of readers they put it in front of happened to be a group of women, and they loved it. Uh, the publisher's blown away because they're thinking this is going to be a book that would target the male audience. And I've I've been surprised too, even still today, how many women just love this story. And I haven't figured out why yet, but there's something that just connects. It's not just a man's man's book. It's um the, the stories in it. The um. I think it does a lot of good to see a tough man come to Christ and have his heart softened. And that really comes through in his book to see the, the complete life change that he undergoes uh, once he does become a Christian. And that's, you know, that's really you what know, the story about. Yeah. God changed him yeah. completely. And it's interesting how you described, and one of the fascinating things I found, and you don't find this in too many books, is the... Uh, Description, the detailed account, the level of uh, specificity with respect to Hell Week mm-hmm. during SEAL training. I, I had no clue what <laughs> went on, you know, and my goodness. So, um, yeah. It makes you tired reading uh, about it, doesn't it? <laughs> well, you know what? It, it, it gives me a, a newfound respect for our men and women over there, uh, but the, the SEALs especially and what they... Uh, I, I just, I, you know, I went through that. One of the questions I had was, I wonder how much that training is worth, uh, you know, dollar-wise. I, and, and I know that's a weird, weird question, but my goodness, mm-hmm. that would you be know, interesting to see um, yeah. how you could put. I don't know how you could put a dollar figure on that because 
you know, what they do for our country. You can't put a price tag on it. They, they give well, exactly. everything. Yeah. You know, and yeah. they, they are willing to go and do whatever it takes to defend our country and defend freedom. That's true. And, but, and, but, and they're, they're well, trained to do that. I mean, that's, that's their mindset. That, that's their default mechanism is to give up their life if need be without thinking. Well, yeah, exactly. And, and, uh, you know, I, you continue on your path because, uh, you know, I, I'm interested too of what your takeaway is, um, sure. from, from this book and, you know, what's stuck with you and such. And go ahead. Yeah, well, I'm glad you mentioned the Heli because that was something that the publisher really wanted to focus on. I mean, you know, there's quite a bit mark, quite a big market of seal books out there. Uh, so you got to find what separates you from the rest. And, you know, first of all, being a, a Christian was one thing, but um, in their research, they determined that there wasn't really told a lot about Hell Week, and that's a great mystery um, to a lot of people that really want to know what it's like. And it's interesting; it, it's a it's a week of sleep deprivation. They get just a few hours of sleep the whole week. They're put through unbelievable physical training um, in the uh, in a, they're out in the surf in San Diego in the cold water. They're brought in and out. They're brought back onto the beach, they get all sanded, they get back into the water, they're in and out, they're running miles and miles and miles, they're told to run, not how far. Uh, so it's just an incredible week that just breaks them down completely to themselves and uh, brings them to the uh, the whole of the body of what they're trying to do as a group. And that is when most people quit. Um, you know, there's a lot talked about, at, about at, the bell. At the instructor, and the instructors are, are urging the people, why don't you just quit, go ahead. Yeah. You can see, yeah. You know, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, if, uh, if they can make you quit there on the beach, then um, they'll know that you would quit when your life's on the line. So it's it's best to weed those people out then, you know, because um, that's why, you know, only 13 out of that large number of um, 100 and, well, 173 made it because it was that difficult. And, you know, like I said, there's a lot of talk about the bell. When you've had enough, you ring a bell, and then you're done. Um, and it was fascinating to hear him talk about the people who had just had enough and they were cold and shivering and hungry and they would give up their life's dream of becoming a seal and ring the bell just for a can of warm ravioli. Um, I don't even want a warm can, you know, a can of ravioli. Uh, but, and so to, to give up your life's dream for a can of ravioli tells you how difficult that it is. The, the the mental stuff that they put uh, you know these people through it's just amazing. Wave bye to the sun. It's going to be a cold night, guys. You know. Oh yeah. Okay. I mean, it's 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 it, it really it struck me. It, but but it's insightful. Um, wow, it's just insightful in, into this whole concept of, of of seals what seals are and, and what builds you know what creates a seal and i i can see too why seals if you are a seal and somebody says yeah I, i'm a seal and they're not yeah but it's you know it's one of the really intriguing things to me as, as a christian and talking with chad about all the detail and stuff is you know there are spiritual applications that we can take out of your seal training uh this this concept of not quitting um you know the christian journey is not easy you know we we face a lot of adversity we go through a lot of tough times and one of the things that really stuck with me was um chad talking about how he would make it through and you know for runners out there 
you know, you, you see a, a target in a distance and you run to that. And then when you get to that point, then you see another target in a distance and you run to that. And that kind of helps you, um, you know, chop up what you're trying to do and into sizable bites. Uh, he reached a point in his training where they were doing these, they call them mile runs, but they're actually multiple, multiple miles and they don't even know how long it will be when they start. He would go one piece of seaweed at a time. It got yeah. so bad it, 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 it was a, a target on the horizon was too far. If he had to make it to there, he would quit. But he would look for the next piece of seaweed on the beach and run to that, and then he'd find another piece of seaweed just, you know, a matter of yards away and run to that. And, I mean, that is something I've taken back to my spiritual walk. Uh, when things get really tough, you know, and we don't see where where we're headed and we'd have no idea how far we're going, how, you know, until our circumstances get better. But, you know, God really wants us to take one piece of seaweed at a time with him and to trust him and to take that one step and he takes it with us. And then we find another marker that he will take us to, another marker and another marker until, you know, our circumstances are, we're, we're hoping they would have been a long time earlier, but God is wanting us to depend on him and just, and if you're doing it one step at a time, you have to rely on God. You know, you have to depend on him. And that has stuck with me. I mean, this book came out in 2012, and that is something I still apply um, in my life today, just that concept of one piece of seaweed at a time. You know, everyone, folks, if you're listening to this broadcast, you know, some some people were going through uh, regular basic training. Others are going through SEAL training. We can apply this to our lives, as you said, Mr. Thomas, and, and we have to look at it as such because, um, you know, I used to – and sometimes I'm not comfortable with the statement that God doesn't give us more than we can handle. Okay, I, I don't necessarily like that statement. Yeah, me neither. Yeah. For, for a lot of reasons, but 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 when you look at it, you, you look at what you're you know what we're all facing. Because I can guarantee you, every one of us listening, everyone listening to this broadcast has got challenges in their lives, and some are just overwhelming, or so it seems. If you're listening to this, folks, and the challenging that you face, challenges that you face are overwhelming. Um, yeah, one piece of seaweed at a time, one step at a time, and, and we can all get through this together. And the, this story is inspirational indeed. And again, Seal of God is the name of the book. Uh, so what, what happened, uh, what happened to Chad, the conversion? You, you want to get into that or where do you want to go? Sure. Uh, if I can backtrack for one second, sure. if you don't mind, yeah. I just want to oh. make one more point from what we were just talking about because it continues what you were talking about. Um, a Navy SEAL learns that he, is created to be much more physical and much more mentally tough than he realizes. That's what training is about. It's about taking them to beyond what they thought their own limits were. So when they're in action, they don't think they have a limit. And I think that spiritually we really sell short how God created us. We are much tougher spiritually than what we think we are. Um, it, it, it's amazing how many times we um, might want to quit if something that really isn't that big of a deal when we're out of that circumstance and we look back on it, you know, hey, that really wasn't that bad, you know? So I, I think there's a lot to learn from SEALs, too, spiritually, from the fact that God made us to be tough spiritually. You know, we are all to be warriors spiritually. We are to be, uh, you know, Gideon was not a warrior, but God called him one. Uh, he didn't know he could be one, but he became one. And I think a lot of times we don't realize how God sees us. He, he might be calling us warrior when we don't feel like one, but when we stick with him, we become one. So, uh, you know, I, I think there's a lot to be taken from this of 
what is God really calling us to be that we don't think we can be? Because he has made us to be much tougher than what we think we are. Yes, he has. And too often we put restrictions on the Lord and what he's able to do for us. And we find ourselves uh, limiting our own selves uh, when he can make significant progress through us if we are open, if we are willing, and if we you know, show up for the battle and dedicate our time uh, to his will being done in our lives. And you know, we've seen and, and talked about this on the show many times about the, the Christian uh, culture here in America. And one of the things that's pretty disheartening, you know, in our line of work, we get a lot of backlash, people complaining, this and that. But surprisingly, the majority of it, the vast majority of it, is Christians tearing down other Christians. And somehow we fell into this um, in a bizarro world where Christians are the the biggest uh, heretics in, in many cases. And that's that spirit of, of you know, religiousness that is uh, running rampant through the church. And with the churches not doing their jobs in order to... Uh, well, the people aren't doing their jobs. The churches are enabling that uh, lack of spiritual growth. And we have the perfect storm that we see today that is allowing even uh, Islam into the Christian religion. So we are just seeing a deterioration morally uh, and doctrinally of the Christian church and the congregants that attend those churches. Uh, yeah, we really are. And it's, it's unfortunate because, again, this is we are not being what we're created to be. You know, we we're created to be so much more than what we are right now. And we're just falling short of what God wants us to be. Yes, we are. Uh, Mr. Thomas, we only have uh, about two minutes before the break. We have, uh, again, your books that uh, you were so gracious to send us. We have uh, Called for Life, the story about the Ebola, Seal of God. And uh, and in the third hour, or in in the next hour, we are going to get into, you're going to bring on a guest, uh, Jordan, and we're going to get into the book Remember Why You Play. And I'm really excited into getting into this. And in the next segment, I hope we can get into Called for Life, uh, the story about the Ebola doctor that you uh, wrote this book uh, about. Sure. And, I'm glad it's, it's an um, interesting story. Yeah, it is. And again, we want to thank John Robertson for setting up uh, this interview. Uh, we got two minutes before the break. Um, any uh, any thoughts that anywhere you want to 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 lead us off into uh, to begin this uh, next uh, after the segment? Uh, yeah, teasers? I'll wrap up with Chad real quick, and because. Uh, I think we started to go there when I interrupted and took you back a step. Uh, once he became a SEAL, you know, his, his brothers turned on him within within the brotherhood, and he suffered physical abuse and almost was drowned uh, because he was a Christian. Um, and, you know, that's just case in point that when you become a Christian, it doesn't mean everything is going to get easier. Uh, he, he, he paid a price for being a Christian for a little bit, but he came through it. Um, he got closer to God because of it. Um, you know, he obviously survived. Um, but, you know, being a Christian doesn't guarantee things are going to be easy. Uh, we, we will, we should expect adversity. And I think then the next segment we'll talk about someone who, who experienced that with, with Dr. Brantley and the, and the sure. that he contracted. In about a minute though, why the backlash? 
because of because of his Christian faith. Why? Why? Well, before he became a Christian, he was out partying with his his brothers. You know, when they were off duty, and they didn't stop, and he did. And so they were concerned that he might turn on them and, and report them, or they just didn't trust him anymore. They thought, if, if, if you're a Christian, you become soft, so if we're in the battlefield, can I trust you to save my life? Are you going to shoot somebody? Uh, uh, so there were those concerns of, you know, him telling what they were doing, and also, can they trust him in the battlefield? Because, I mean, sure. you have to trust your brother when you're in that situation. And sure. he's, you know... Later, he would ride on the top of a Humvee shooting a fifty caliber as protection. So you got to know that guy is someone you can trust and right. and you know has your back. And and he experienced many 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 things as a SEAL in Iraq and other countries as well. But uh, but my goodness, the, the story you, you got to read it, man. It's just tremendous, folks. Again, we're talking with David Thomas, a senior writer and sports columnist for the Fort Worth Star Telegram a lifelong Texan and graduate of the University of Texas at Arlington. He lives near Fort Worth, Texas with his wife and family, and he is the author of several books, very inspirational books that tell stories uh, among the vast number of issues in great detail. And we're going to get uh, we're going to come back with David Thomas and get into the meat of some of these books, specifically in the third hour, Remember Why You Play. Faith Football and a Season to Believe. Right after this, stay with us. Special guest, Mr. Dave Thomas, David Thomas, author. In addition to a number of other things, very colorful, colorful history filmmaker as well. Yeah, and two of his eleven books are New York Times bestsellers. You know, it's, just think about that: having a New York Times best-selling author on the Hagman and Hagman Report. How great is that? Well, hopefully, everyone got a chance to, to listen to the segment with Dinesh D'Souza yesterday. What a great segment that was. Dinesh D'Souza, um, what an interesting man, of course, and um, then Carl Gallup's uh, following that. But certainly, um, folks, go to yesterday and uh, go to uh, the 19th, October 19th, of Hagman and Hagman, and listen to the segment with Dinesh D'Souza. But now we've got uh, Mr. Dave, David Thomas on, on the line talking with him. Joe, I'm going to kick it back to you. Yeah, we're talking with Mr. Thomas about uh, a number of his books, um, Called for Life, Dealing with Ebola, Seal of God, and what we'll get into later, Remember Why You Play. If we can, Mr. Thomas, in this segment, get into what happened in last year with the Ebola crisis and how it is that you got involved in this. Sure. Um, Dr. Kim Brantley was a, uh, he and his wife, Amber, they, uh, he's a doctor. She's a, um, a mission, uh, uh, excuse me, a nurse. They, uh, were missionaries to West Africa, specifically to Liberia. Uh, and they were there before the Ebola broke, uh, the Ebola breakout hit in uh, Guinea and then spread to Sierra Leone and Liberia. So they were there working with Samaritan's Purse at a hospital there in Monrovia. 
obviously he's quite well known, contracted Ebola while treating a patient. He's still not exactly sure how he got it. He's got it narrowed down to a couple possibilities. But uh, he was he was actually in charge of uh, training for uh, how to handle these type of diseases and how to stay safe and, and keep the uh, medical workers safe. And he actually contracted it himself. And uh, as a lot of people know, he was flown to Atlanta to Emory University where he was uh, administered um, an experimental drug that was actually started while he was in Africa and was completed while he was in Atlanta. And uh, the drug did work and he survived Ebola and uh, he became kind of the face in the United States of Ebola because he was the first high profile person to get it and the first to controversially be flown back to the U.S. to be treated. And um, he was just throughout, as he recovered and started doing press conferences and appearances, he was just highly praised for being a man of, of, of great respect and great compassion and just an example of what God would probably want a medical missionary in Africa to be. And so he received a lot of attention for how he handled things uh, because there were people who didn't think he should have been brought back. But as I watched the news and I saw just, you know, he handled everything with grace and, and dignity and compassion. And uh, he made a full recovery. And he and his wife are still working with Samaritan's Purse. Uh, they're not missionaries uh, overseas right now. They're, they're based in the U.S. helping out Samaritan's Purse. They were, they were quite generous to get in some time to kind of get their family back together and get things back to normal from what they uh, had to endure. But their heart is overseas, and I haven't talked to them in a few months, but at that time they were still seeking God's will and hoping that it would be an opportunity to go back and serve people in a country like Liberia they can get there or somewhere similar where people just need medical help and their medical conditions are just not um, what we in the United States think they should be, uh, would be kind of shocked to experience. So um, I, I got through them. Uh, they had found some connection to my agent, so that's how I got with him. But an, an interesting, kind of little funny part of that is as Dr. Brantley was uh, given the press conference, his first press conference in Atlanta after he was uh, cleared, um, I was watching with my wife, and she said, you need to write Dr. Brantley's book. And I'm like, yeah, right, that'd be great, wouldn't it? And then a few months later, they're on the phone with me <laughs> uh, asking if I would write their book. And uh, uh, how, how do you do that? Do you cozy up with the guy? I mean, I don't want to. Sorry, man. I'm not, I, you know, you, you you guys got a bola and uh, okay. Why well, do you? I mean, seriously, how how do you do that? Uh, why do you do that? Um, I believe that he was uh, completely healed. Uh, he, you know, he's a medical medical doctor. He's not going to do anything that uh, would put anyone in harm's way. So, um, yeah, I shook his hand and you know visited his house four or five times. Um, they, they live actually live pretty near me so we're able to visit quite a few times and um yeah no no problems at all I had no qualms at all although I was a little concerned that uh, there was one day right after the, the first time I interviewed him I kind of had a little fever and had a little upset stomach I'm like oh no oh great oh great <laughs> and yeah. I, knew, I knew you know I knew it wasn't anything major but the thought did enter my mind what if something happened but my bigger fear was actually going to the doctor and saying have you been around anyone with Ebola uh, yeah Dr. Brantley so I knew I would have been quarantined for a month or something if I'd have said that. So I was hoping, I was hoping the Advil would take care of it, and I would have to go uh, face that situation, and it did. <laughs> well, yeah, and he made, uh, of course, Doctor Kent Brantley made uh, 
Oh, made news, so folks. I mean, you'd have to be living under a rock not to remember that. Uh, uh, when was that? That was back in July of uh, 2014 is when he was uh, when he contracted disease when he was diagnosed. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's right. And um, yeah, and again, he's a guy, the American doctor with uh, Samaritan's Purse, and uh, you remember him he contracted Ebola, folks, in Liberia. He became the first American to return to the United States, treated for the disease. People looking like, hey, you know, really? We're going we're to bring this guy back. And uh, so, but perception is a little bit different than reality, isn't it? In oh, quite case. a bit. Yeah, quite a bit. And, you know, I, I trust our medical research, you know, uh, to not expose us to something like that, especially for, you know, one individual. I know, uh, I mean, I enjoy a good government conspiracy just like anybody else. They're fun to, to play with and stuff. But, um, you know, that thought does enter your mind, you know, or are we doing the right thing here? And I remember thinking that, you know, I wasn't opposed to bringing him back, but I remember processing in my mind, you know, is this safe? You know, is this what we need to be doing? And um, obviously it was. And uh, because of that, uh, they've been able to raise awareness of Ebola. Um, I mean, that, that's that's their heart's work is to raise awareness of uh, people in different countries who don't have what we have and um, and and need help. I mean, they're just right. compassionate people. And then, ladies and gentlemen, just to be clear, um, he, along with other medical professionals involved with uh, treating Ebola patients, became Time Magazine's Person of the Year back in 2014. And uh, now, uh, he also gave the uh, invocation at the prayer breakfast, I believe, for for the uh, White House, right? Yes, he did. Uh, yes. Point. Okay. All right. Yes. Yeah, and he even okay. shook President Obama's hand. So if the president can shake his hand, I think it's safe for me to shake his hand, too. <laughs> mm. <laughs> I won't go our sneaking, but anyway, yeah, uh, it's a little levity there. Okay, all right. So yeah, I mean, it, it's it's it, so this is a kind of a remarkable. Uh, yeah, now as a writer, though, you you, you kind of have to assume the persona in, in a sense of the person you're writing about, right? I mean, uh, yeah, when you collaborate with someone to tell their life story, you you have to try to as much as you can to walk in their shoes, and and that was difficult in this case. Uh, it was fun. You know, doing it with a Navy SEAL, because then I got to be big and tough and, you know, macho kind of guy. Um, but when you have a disease that is not treatable, or at least we don't believe it's treatable, and you think you have a death sentence and you picture your wife an entire country away, you know, so I had to put myself in that situation and imagine what it, and, and one of the really cool aspects of this book is although the majority of the story is told by Dr. Brantley, uh, Amber also tells portions of her story while she was back in the United States separated from him. You know, so I kind of had to live in both shoes of what it would be like for my wife to be separated from me while I was probably dying. What was so she thinking? Was, I mean, I, I got to and, and, and folks, again, you know, we're talking about people that, uh, uh, my goodness, imagine yourself in this position. But but what in the world was she thinking back here in the U.S.? He's over there in Liberia. Not exactly the place to be, I wouldn't imagine, <laughs> you know. So yeah, what was she, medical, what, medical conditions are tough. She was thinking yeah. a lot. Uh, she had, um, you're talking about a lot of responsibility. She had just flown back with their two kids, young kids, uh, just a few days earlier, or she would have been there when he contracted the disease. So first of all, she was glad that they had left. 
um, to get hurt, you know, so that the kids weren't Sorry. exposed to it. I mean, it was just yeah. a matter of probably a week, I believe. He was supposed to fly to the United States in a couple of days to join them for a family wedding, and she had come back a little early. So first of all, she was relieved that the kids were not exposed um, to, the, to the virus. Um, so she's got the kids here in the States that she's responsible for. Um, she's concerned about her husband, and, and what was kind of fascinating talking to her, you know, she's a nurse. You know, so not only was she missing her husband, she wanted to take care of him. You know, she has that caretaker's heart. She's just a really sweet, caring person. And so not only was she separated, but she could not take care of her husband. And that really affected her as much as anything else to think that he was there, uh, being cared for very well by capable doctors, um, but that she couldn't be there and be one of the caretakers for him. Yeah, it would be tough, you know. I mean, yeah, I, I'm not sure I'd, I'm not sure I'd handle that situation well. <laughs> no, what's your biggest takeaway from this? Uh, because again, you're looking at folks. You're looking. Understand this. I mean, here's a here's a guy that made the headlines, the international headlines, and uh, you're writing about him. You're writing about the situation. What's your takeaway from uh, from this one? The big word with the Brantleys is just compassion. First of all, compassion took them there. I mean, when they went, Ebola had not, well, he had only heard of Ebola, um, you know, just in training for extreme diseases, you know. He had no association with it any time at that point. So um, when they went there, Ebola wasn't present, but it became present, and they stayed uh, out of compassion for the people. You know, he knew that they needed the medical training that he had received, uh, he felt that he was quite capable of helping the people. And uh, one, one of the things that really, really moved me in talking with him was, um, and, and he would tear up quite often as we talked, but, you know, with an Ebola patient, um, it's tough because, I mean, it's, it's a really cruel disease. It just, you lose all control of your bodily functions. You get this, you know, horrible fever and a lot of pain that comes with that until you don't die from Ebola, just something in your body shuts down because of Ebola. So maybe uh, cardiac arrest or some kind of uh, organ failure or something. Uh, Ebola doesn't kill you, but it kills your body and then something in your body just shuts down. He wanted people to die with dignity. Um, they're quarantined in this area where all the medical workers are completely covered um, in Material, you know, to protect them. Their their wrists and ankles are taped up, um, you know, so nothing can get through a sleeve. They're wearing hoods and masks, and so all the patient can see is their eyes and right around their eyes. And so these patients in Liberia are in there with no family. Family cannot get to them. You know, they, they have to be separated from people. And all they have are these medical people who aren't even the same skin color as them. They're definitely foreigners. Um, and so it, it really hurt him to see people dying um, alone. And so he would sit at a bed with someone and, again, you know, two layers of gloves and fully wrapped up um, and hold their hand just so that when their time did come, they could, they could be loved by somebody. They could be touched by somebody, even though it wasn't skin on skin. There was some kind of contact that showed somebody did care for them. And he saw his mission at that point when he couldn't do anything medically is just to show Jesus to those people. Yeah, that's amazing. Uh, i got to ask, I know NBC, um, I think it was NBC, I think they did a, a, an article or a story on this. What cured Kent Brantley? Uh, Kent Brantley, and uh, you know what cured him? I mean, how? 
What cured him? Mm-hmm. Um, that's actually a very interesting question because he says God healed him, and he received a lot of criticism for that because he did take the experimental drug Z-Map. Uh, that just so happened to be uh, in another country near there, had been sent for someone who was uh, high up in the government who had Ebola, and he thought it would be um, not look well to his country people if he was taking uh, a drug from outside the country, from, you know, a Western drug. Uh, so he chose to die instead of taking the Z-Map. Uh, and then just because it was there, they were able to get some to Dr. Brandt and get him started on it while he was in Liberia and then finish it in the U.S., uh, so, you know, he, he, he talks about it. it I, I can't wrap it up for you in short, but he, he talks about this in the book in, in rather good detail about how he definitely believed God healed him. And it's through ZMAP. It's through the doctors who cared for him. It's through God's touch. He can't give you the exact way that God healed him. But, you know, since he recovered, he was able to... Um, spend time with the researchers who came up with ZMAP and they told him about all the little things that went into making it to where ZMAP even came into being. I mean, like the number of tobacco plants that were available to make it, you know, and just how many they happened to have left over from an, an experiment they were doing. And so he saw God's fingerprints many, many places that led to him being healed. Yeah. I mean, you'd have to see that. And and, and I, you know, I, I'll be honest with you. I remember the story. I remember the discussion about him coming back to the United States, first person to do that with Ebola. And I remember thinking to myself, man, this is not a good idea. I'm sorry. <laughs> you know, and I, and I have to say that. I, I just, I, I'm thinking of my family. I'm thinking, and, and yes. I'm thinking of my welfare, you know? Mm-hmm. And I, and I but, had some of those same questions, too. I don't know if I actually reached a decision or not. I don't remember reaching one. But I remember thinking those exact same things. Um, but he, he flew to Emory University that was, um, if any place could handle it, they could. All right. Well, okay. Yeah, and, and I guess, I, I mean, but but just the whole the whole fact of getting him over here and, yeah. Um, yeah. You know, everything associated with that. I again, I remember thinking, not with any degree of specificity, but thinking, and this is just such a bad idea. And, and thinking, well, how um, uh, the the word I'm looking for is, uh, I, I don't know, how irresponsible. It's it's more than that. It was just you know how how, how poor of a decision this is. But again, mm-hmm. yeah. you're looking at God's hands in this, and and that's what you document. You document a lot of this, a lot of the things that can't really be explained either, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So. And did, there's nothing wrong with not being able to explain everything. <laughs> no, that's true. I mean, and, and so, if, so if this story. Explain everything, yeah, yeah, if we could explain everything, we wouldn't have a very big God, would we? <laughs> no, that's true. <laughs> not at all. I don't I don't want a God I can fully explain, because that's not much of a God to me. If, if I can comprehend everything about him, he's, he's not God, you know. That's just something equal to me, and I don't want that. No, no. But, man, you did a great job in really conveying the essence of the story. And, Thank uh, you. folks, you know, yeah, no problem. And, uh, folks, you know, the, the story itself is an amazing story, but to read it in the fashion that it was written is enjoyable as well, inspirational, too. You know, it, we, we have to have wins like this. 
That's that's kind of my thinking here. When we talk about all of the crap, crud, junk, you know, the the bad news, the World War Three on the horizon, the headlines that are just so dismal, you got to have some good stuff here. You got to throw into the mix some good stuff. And man, this is some good stuff. So, you know, and it's it's very good. So, yeah, leaves people with hope. Yeah, indeed. And if if this guy mm-hmm. can, you know, if Doctor Ken Bradley could. Uh, Overcome what he did, and and then the the, the uh, relationship between him and his him and Amber, the kids. Oh my goodness, you know, just thinking. Yeah, they wow. they are uh, they are an incredible family. You know, I remember, like I said, watching him on TV and thinking that's a great guy. And you know, I've been in in the positions I've been in journalism um, and writing books. I've, I've worked with some well known people, and you know, sometimes they are what you think they are. Sometimes they're not. Uh, with the Brantleys, they were better than I thought they would, than I hoped they would be. They were just, um, gracious, gracious people. Um, and I, and I'll, I want to give them credit for one thing, you know, um, I've written 11 books and nine of them are this type where I've worked with someone to tell their life story and I've never worked with anyone who put as much work into their own book as they did. They worked diligently. They wanted it to be an excellent work. Uh, and, and, and that's why it turned out as well as it did because of how hard they worked on it from the medical details to, uh, to the expression of compassion they have. Their thought was, you know, we're going to write one book and, you know, this needs to really glorify God. And that was their purpose in, in writing the book. And I mean, they, they did Colossians 3.23 <laughs> throughout the process. They worked uh, very hard, and the end product showed it. And uh, like I said, just just amazingly gracious people. And you look at them, you want to treat them like a superstar for how they conducted themselves under difficult circumstances. But they would push you away from doing that. They are so humble, and I don't use that as a cliche. They are just very humble people who appreciate what God has done in their life, not just with Ebola, but just the fact that they're married and how they got together and the fact that they got to go uh, do missions overseas um, and help the people of Liberia. Uh, just they have, it, it, probably as much as anybody that I've spent a lot of time with, this is close to the hardest crisis I could imagine people having. Hmm. Well, he he, re- he revealed, by the way, like a near-death, I don't want to say near-death experience, a near-death ordeal. And that's uh, uh, not too many people can, can actually can actually recount something like that. Mm-hmm. The near death ordeal, man. Uh, Mr. Thomas, we have a um, about five minutes before our top of the hour break, and next hour we're going to be talking about uh, your book. Remember why you play. If you can, can you give us a synopsis or an introduction into what we're going to be getting into next hour? What this book sure. is about? Yeah, I'm really looking forward to that hour. Remember why you play is my baby. <laughs> uh, yes. I love, you know, people say, what's your favorite book you've written? And this is it. I hate to really pick out one, but uh, this was my first book. Um, it was um, just the way it came about was just a, um, a God idea to do. And um, the, domino, the, the dominoes that God put in place for the book to actually get published are um, really in, in, incredible. And, and what the book is, it's the, the very short version is it's a Friday Night Lights for Christians. Um, you know, Friday Night Lights was a book about a, a large public school in Texas, about a football program there, and how the uh, the community and the parents 
kind of negatively impacted that team. Well, this book is the opposite of that. It's about a very small private Christian high school here in Texas, uh, but they're trained by a coach who teaches life lessons through sports, who views sports as a, a great competitive arena, but ultimately is second to being a platform for ministry. And so everything that he does is intentional to teach life into these kids. He wants to win football games, obviously, because he's in Texas and this is Texas high school football. But his ultimate goal is to develop leaders and fathers and husbands that are going to make an impact in the world when they go out, wherever they go in their world, whatever whatever their corner of the world is. He wants to train them for that. Um, so what I did was I followed a, um, a team called Grapevine Faith Christian School. Uh, it's here in the Dallas-Fort Worth Metroplex. It's a school of about 300 students in the high school, about 800 kindergarten through 12th grade. And uh, I followed them for the 2007 season um, and just did the whole Friday Night Lights thing. Uh, followed them and, and wrote about each game and wrote about the life stories to coach and parts throughout the, throughout the season. Um, and then in 2008, while the book was trying to be sold, uh, a very special game happened. I know we'll talk talk about that in detail, but just to kind of tease that a little bit, it was a uh, they played a uh, a football team from a prison school, and this is a team that has no fans. They're not good. Um, the, the kids who play are the cream of the crop within the prison population. Um, they had to earn their right to get off campus to go to a football game. I mean, the, the particular night they played, they had 14 players was all they had. So they're outmanned every week. They had no fans. The only fans they have are the school volunteers and the guards who come, which may be 15 to 20 people. So they play every week on the road because they don't have a home stadium. So they go on the road, they usually get beat bad, and they have no fans. But they do get to leave campus and play, you know, experience a Friday night of Texas high school football. Uh, for this particular night, when uh, when Faith played uh, Gainesville State School, is the name of the prison institution, um, the coach set up ahead of time to have um, the Faith fans become fans of the Gainesville State players. So that included a, um, a run-through tunnel before the game. Uh, so they ran between the Faith fans. They had a little tear two banner. Uh, they said, you know, go Tornadoes, their, their school nickname that they'd never had before. And then about half the fans sat on the home side and half the fans sat on the visiting side during the game. And they cheered for these Gainesville State players. And the um, it's just an amazing night. Uh, the ramifications are still felt. We'll talk about that the next hour. It's just an unbelievable night of something that does not happen in sports, and especially in Texas high school football. Yeah, to, to recount that, and, and folks, you're going to want to hear this because this was one of the most inspiring, uplifting, and incredible stories I've read and heard. And uh, you're just, wow, it's just an amazing, so stick with us. And again, this, this is, a, uh, these are life lessons. These are inspirational stories. These are things that should grab your heart and interest and, oh my goodness, it should make you feel good. Folks, we're talking with author. Uh, Dave Thomas, if you want to, the best place to, I'll tell you what, just go to, um, uh, go to his, uh, Amazon page. That's David Thomas on Amazon. And of course, uh, uh, you can get it, uh, the, the, we, we have it linked off of Hagman and Hagman.com as well. But he's the, uh, he's the author, co-writer of 11 books. Can you believe that? 11 books. He's a, he's a collaborator. Now, um, 
uh, I'm not going to say ghostwriter, but collaborator. It's about, <laughs> it's about the same thing, but close. Yeah, you know, and, and your background is as a sports writer. Started at mm-hmm. age 13. Go figure. Six years at the Dallas Morning News, 15 years at Fort Worth Star-Telegram, and where he was a senior writer and columnist. Of course, he left the journalism business in 2011 to write, and his day job is a writer um, uh, for an international ministry. We'll just leave it at that. It's interesting, indeed. Folks, we're going to be right back. Hagman and Hagman Report. Join us on social networking, Hagman Report on Facebook, at Hagman Report on Twitter, and of course, Real Tech Eric. Spread the tweets. Be right back. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to this third and final hour on this Thursday edition of the Hagman and Hagman Report. We are joined by author David Thomas talking about uh, a number of books. One, Seal of God, a book from the standpoint of the publisher wanted the book to include detailed accounts of uh, SEAL training, of hell weed during SEAL training, and... uh, we are also talking about Called for Life, the story of the Ebola doctor, as well as in this hour, what we've been waiting to talk talk about is the book Remember Why You Play. And Remember Why You Play, uh, uh, David's going to be bringing on, and we do have with us uh, Jordan Dunnington, who is a major part of this book. Now, what I want to do, if we can, David, is I'm going to turn it over to you and kind of let you set this up and uh, get this going and um, introduce the guest and uh, how you guys came about uh, to writing this book. Sure. Um, the book, as I mentioned uh, in the last segment, was from the 2007 season. Uh, the idea came to me uh, a year before that. I woke up at 3 a.m. on a Sunday morning, uh, wide awake, which I don't usually do at 3 a.m. on a Sunday morning uh, during football season, and I could just see uh, basically what this book became. Uh, a very clear, very crystal clear idea of, like I said earlier, a variety uh, night lights for Christians. And uh, when I had the idea, I knew exactly what school and what coach um, this book needed to be about. And so I, I checked with the coach um, that day, actually, and he said, let's do it. And so that started the journey. Um, and I, I spent a season, if you use the word embedded, <laughs> with the um, Lions of Grapevine Faith Christian School. And I documented um, their entire season. I was there every day. I think I missed one day for a funeral. Um, and so I spent the entire season with them and documented their life stories. Uh, and mainly, uh, as the season progressed, the life stories or the life lessons that their football coach teaches. Uh, again, he's a, he's a coach who uh, has a higher mission than coaching. He's an excellent coach, had opportunities to coach in college at, at 
college programs that listeners would recognize, but he feels he's where he needs to be. And uh, so he has stayed at the high school level because he wants to make men like Jordan Dunnington. Um, so Jordan was a junior that year. He graduated in 2009. Uh, he was a running back and a cornerback on that team, which um, going into the season was ranked number one in the state. Uh, so definitely a powerhouse in the state of uh, Texas football. And uh, to introduce Jordan, um, I think the best thing I can say is if my son turns out like Jordan, I am going to be ecstatic. Um, I got to know Jordan very well, and he has two younger brothers, and got to know his parents, and just quality family. Um, I knew in 2007 that Jordan was going to be something in life, and he's proven me correct on that. Um, I stay in touch with him some. We, we, we talk from time to time. I see him in a few games. And um, at the time, um, my wish was that my I had a daughter and a son, that they could go to that school after experiencing what it was like there. And a couple of years later, um, it happened to be where we could put them there. So my son is currently a sophomore at that school. Uh, he plays on the football team, playing for Coach Hogan. And so he's following Jordan's footsteps, and um, I hope that he continues to follow in Jordan's footsteps because, I mean, Jordan is just an excellent young man with a great heart for God and a great mind for God. Uh, he's got the perfect balance of uh, mind and heart being dedicated to Christ. Well, that's fantastic. Jordan, welcome to the Hagman and Hagman Report. It's great to have you on here. And uh want to well, hear from you um, uh, about um, your experiences and what led you to, th- to this point. Well, first off, I want to say thank you, Doug and Joe. It's a pleasure being here. And, and Coach Dave, as we called him, he said he was embedded. He definitely was. I uh, appreciate his gracious words. Um, so uh, I think one of the, the largest things that I'm excited to talk about um, is um, walking through that process of um, what we were thinking about and how we processed everything uh, from a coach and a staff who decided to to act and express faith through love, which is really what that was all about. Um, and, and going through that process and then years later turning around and seeing how God used Coach Dave and the school um, and those young men that um, we had the opportunity to, to engage with and how that story was really able to capture people's attention um, because it is Texas high school football. And we have stadiums here that, that people uh, will shut out $60 million for. And so it's the, the Friday night life feeling, it's the uh, the competition, it's the feeling that you get when you step on that field is so electric. And to experience a moment like what we experienced uh, was surreal. And I, I can tell you that it's still something that um, talking to other teammates who were there, um, we still all kind of just scratch our heads and, and think, wow, that was uh, as crazy as that happened, but it was an honor to be a part of that. Well, that's uh, that's fantastic. Um, moving on to the next question, and I don't want to jump ahead. If I do jump ahead or get into an area where uh, I'm moving too fast, or you want to switch gears, definitely uh, let me know, and we will we will fix that. Um, and I'm going okay. from some show notes here that that John Robertson was so gracious enough to put together for us, um, and some of the things he laid out uh, that he thinks would be very uh, good to ask is. 
Um, what was it like uh, to play in that league and to uh, get the success that you had? Um, in terms of uh, of playing in in taps, and if I'm correct, um, in your question you're asking about uh, taps as a whole, or just specifically the game for the game. No, not 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 the physical part, but uh, the mentality uh, and w- what you had to do to you know put together the drive every day to to get in there and, and play the game. Uh, what, what did how did that change you uh, as a person? Being able to uh, participate in, in that, um, I think what I walked away with uh, the most from from that experience and. And like I said, all of us did was there's there's a proverb that that stuck with me and it says pleasant words are a honeycomb, sweet to the soul and healing to the bone. And um, I think in that moment I saw what can happen um, when people infuse hope in other people's hearts. Um, they we, we are we were on the football field and we were across from each other and we were we were supposed to be competition um, and then when you see um, fans that traditionally root for you going to the other side and, and seeing what they did in terms of creating this huge spirit line um, for uh, the Gainesville State players and and um, encouraging them as they were driving down the field and scoring on us I remember even thinking well, I, my, my parents are rooting against me. It was, it was the hottest, hottest feeling. But to to walk away and then see as those fans were cheering for Gainesville State, um, to see the confidence that came, um, and then the hope that came, and then you saw the play from the players increase, and you saw them get excited and start building each other up. It 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 really speaks to how powerful. Um, exhortation is looking past the exterior, looking past the circumstances that people come from, looking past the circumstances that they are in in that specific moment, um, and then speaking to their capability. Um, and I think it's it's even stronger when it's someone that you that you don't know. Uh, these kids didn't know the fans, um, and yes, about my perspective, I think that's something that stuck with me. That all right. Even if I don't know somebody, it's much more impactful um, or almost as impactful um, for a stranger to exhort you or build you up um, and speak to your capability um, as it is someone who's close to you. Yeah, the word that came out of that game, I think the most often used word was hope. Uh, some of the players mm-hmm. talked about, you know, before every game you watch your opponents warm up, you, know, you kind of size them up and see how big they are, what you know, what they look like and stuff. And some of the players told me that when they looked across the other end of the field and watched the uh, the, the kids from the prison school warming up for the game, and, and actually interject here that at the, this was the last game of the regular season. The uh, faith was seven and two; they were already going to the playoffs. The game, you know, really meant nothing to them because their playoff fate had already been set. Uh, Gainesville State was 0-8. Uh, they had won, you know, had won a game all year. They had scored two touchdowns all season. So they played eight games and scored two touchdowns. And when the, the players from Faith would look and size them up across the field, they said they looked like they didn't want to be there. 
and you know I think the word for that is hopeless. Um, they just didn't have much hope. The knee is one is the joke. Is the uh, coach joked to me later? We knew we were about to get thrown to the Lions <laughs> because you know they were going up against a really good team. So they didn't. They had no hope in that game. But as the game transpired um, and they began to react to the fans, um, it became you know to use a little hyperbole. It became their Super Bowl. Uh, they they responded to. Um, people cheering for them by name because they didn't ex- ever experience that. They were hearing good things said about them, and when you're a teenager in a prison, you don't get that very often. So there were people just encouraging them, and you could see the hope build throughout the game. And uh, I, I think you're going to post a, a, um, a uh, story from one of the local TV stations on your website, but yes. there was a scene after the game that was just incredible. And it became kind of the photo that uh, stood out as this whole story went viral. And I mean, literally all over the world, we, we heard from people at all parts of the globe that watched this video. Um, they lost 33-14. They scored two touchdowns after scoring two touchdowns all season. Um, now, we'll have to say that uh, the faith coach did kind of manufacture things so they could have some success, if you know what I mean there, uh, to allow them to experience that. But after the game, the two teams gathered uh, at midfield and prayed. And then some of the players in Gainesville State School got their little water bottles, squirt bottles, and squirted water on their coach like they had just won a Super Bowl. Uh, and that's after losing 33-14. So if, if that gives you any indication of what happened to those kids during that game, you know, it's just a, a, a picture that just still stands out from the game, the people who were there and have um, heard about it and read about it. You know what? This is a fascinating story, folks. We're talking to David Thomas, the author, and of course uh, the player of the game, the book, by the way. Remember why you play? And uh, Jordan Dunnington uh, is the player. He was there, you know. And this is the kind of stuff movies are made of, of course, if there's financing. <laughs> but anyway, this is the kind. Of, this is the stuff movies are made of. This is stuff books are written about, of course. Remember why you play. But many life lessons can be applied here, and um, I, I, I want to ask you because uh, I don't, in, unless I missed it, whose idea was it to to back the opposing team like this? Whose idea was it? This was the head coach of uh, Faith Christian, Chris Hogan. Uh, they, these two teams had um, not played before, and what had happened was Faith had moved up into a new classification and had been placed into a district with Gainesville State School. And when he saw the schedule, every year when he gets the new schedule, you know, he kind of goes through and, you know, this team is going to be good. This team's, you know, um, got a great tradition. This team is like this. When he got to Gainesville State, he knew they were a prison school but didn't know much about them. But just something stuck in him that something had to be done with that game, that it wasn't going to be just a game. And so he, you know, he, he continued to pray about it over time. And um, one day, in his prayer time, he got the idea of giving them fans because he knew that they had no hope. Uh, he could see, he could visualize. He, he's been in prison speaking and stuff before as parts of ministry. And he saw the faces of the people who were in ministry, and he could see the kids, teenagers, inside that situation, inside that fence where they just don't have hope. And he could see, he could visualize faces that just were hopeless. And so he knew then that they needed someone to show them, that he, as he likes to say, in this country, uh, there are people who are willing to give you a second chance. And so that was kind of what he wanted to come through that night, uh, was that, you know, if you, and again, these, these kids earned the right to leave the facility 
they had to be on uh, great behavior. Uh, they had to have good grades. Um, you know, so it's not easy to um, maintain that eligibility. But the one, the 14 who came that night had proven themselves that they were doing right things. So he wanted to speak encouragement to them and give them fans for a night. And I think Jordan even had a real interesting, interesting perspective uh, before the game that he talked to Coach Hogan about. That I'll let him tell you about. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Um, I think one of one of the, the things that when Coach Hogan let us know what was going to be happening, uh, myself and, and even some of the players, uh, we were we knew that that was part of State's mission. Uh, part of State's mission it really is they say they want to graduate authentic Christian leaders, and and a lot of that looks like faith expressing expressing itself through love. But a lot of us players thought, okay, what about we want this to come across as authentic. And I, I think there was a little caution in, in the beginning to say, um, if we're going to do something, we want them to know that this actually is coming from our hearts and we're not just trying to uh, to create a huge stage and make something happen. And uh, Coach Hogan and the staff, they were very receptive to what we were, what we said and, and when I talked to him about it. And um, I think it really dawned on me two times that this was authentic. One was when they had us um, create some notes of encouragement um, for the players. And that was when all of a sudden, when you go and you talk to somebody and say, well, I really want this to be authentic, and then you have the opportunity to be authentic, that's when it really hits you. Oh, wow, I'm involved in this. I'm involved in this process. Um, and words matter, and words are powerful. Um, and, and then afterwards, Going back to, to how Dave explained uh, the just how jubilant the whole team was, um, and I feel like authentic effort produces authentic results. Um, moments like what we saw after that with, with the water bottles and how we all got together and prayed in the minute in the middle of the field and um, and hugged the guys and um, those those aren't something that uh, you just rehearse that. It was just natural. It was it was organic. And it was dynamic, and it was something that stuck with us, um, and it definitely sticks with me. Um, and that authenticity breeds authenticity. That's a wonderful statement. <laughs> I told you he was good tonight. <laughs> yeah, that, that was, that <laughs> he was a, a great young a man. <laughs> uh, wow, how old were you when? Uh, how old were you at, at, uh, during that game? Uh, I was 18 at the time, okay. uh, so it was my senior year, um, and uh, it was it was a cool experience to be to be a part of, um, absolutely. And glad I was able to to be there, really, because uh, Coach Dave had been there since my junior year and um, had been around the team that whole time, and and then we got to see him the next year, and um, the fact that. That all of this came together when it did. Um, um, I heard you guys mention earlier. Some, there's some things God just does that are outside of our, our realm of understanding, and He just put things together. And um, it blows my mind even talking about how that all came about and where we are today. 
Right. Yeah, I've talked about how this story went viral. The uh, the different places that picked up on it, you know, and wrote their own versions of the story or, or made their own uh, videos of it. Uh, that game almost went underported. Um, the Wednesday before the game on Friday, I got an email from one of the assistant coaches um, who said, "Hey, we got something special we might be doing Friday night. Do you want to come and see if it's a story?" And so I was working at the newspaper at the time and. Um, I didn't know what was going to happen, really, but uh, I made arrangements to be there. Um, and Coach Hogan had not want, wanted to even publicize it. Uh, when I called him, and of course by this time we knew each other really well, when I called him and told him I was coming, he had kind of a mixed reaction. He kind of, part of him didn't want me to be there because he didn't want any attention coming to it. But at the same time, he relished the attention that would come only from the standpoint that he likes to put Christianity out there in a place where people have to confront it. You know, he, he's, uh, as Jordan will tell you, he's, I say confrontational in a good way. He doesn't back down from his Christianity, and he likes to put Christianity on display, and that's what he knew was going to happen that night. So while he didn't want attention coming to it, he also saw the opportunity for people to to learn what would happen and have to do something about it in their minds and in their hearts. And so, you know, that, that I showed up that night, and I was the only reporter there, um, so it was within two days of not even being reported. And then, like I said, it got picked up uh, by other places that ran that story and wrote their own versions. And uh, ESPN wrote about it, and they had over 2 million hits on their article they wrote about it. And just it's just went literally viral. Huh. Jordan can tell you how crazy it got around the school um, after that yeah. story got out yeah. with all the media requests and everything coming in. Just people just stunned and moved by what had happened and wanting to find out, you know, why, why well, did y'all you, do this and stuff. Yeah. Uh, yeah. D- tell us about that, Jordan. That, that sounds like an interesting um, position for you to be placed in. Yeah, it, it definitely, uh, for us, um, especially people always talk about millennials being the social media generation for us to see uh, on uh, over social media or over the internet, how a story blew up um, that quickly. We, we're just sitting here as 18 year old wide out kids. You're saying, wow. Um, it, it, it gave credence to a lot of the things that coach Hogan was saying, because like coach Dave says, uh, coach Hogan uh, is, is forward in the way that he presents his faith. And um, for high school kids who, who are listening and who are looking up to their coach, then we, we did listen to a lot of what he was saying. Um, but, I mean, you're a high school kid. You're, you're going through your life and you're dealing with uh, everything that you feel is important at the time. Um, so sometimes things go through one ear and out the other. But to see that when we acted on some of the principles that they talked about um, and then to see the domino effect, not only of how it affected um, the people uh, that we engaged with, that we connected with, but then to see how that itself spread out and encouraged other people across the nation. Um, I, I even remember after I had graduated, I was uh, in college, um, and I got a couple of Facebook messages from people who just said, hey, I just want to let you know, uh, I read the book and the way that you guys carried yourself, that was very encouraging. It was an encouragement to me. It, things like that where you're, it, uh, it's just unbelievable, but it speaks to the, to the power of hope because hope is something that people want to grab onto. Uh, you can look in any arena um, 
across the country um, at that time or even now. People love to to believe in hope, um, and thankfully, the gospel working itself out in action always will, will provide an opportunity um, for hope to spread. You know, it seems like uh, that day, you know, the football, and that was certainly uh, it took a backseat to developing or to 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 um expressing character developing character of 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 young men and showing the character of the uh people around uh the young men i mean what an example and, and yeah you know i mean this started something didn't it um if if i'm correct and i'm reading this correctly or read this correctly i should say this started something i mean this um uh, what happened that night began something big. It was the beginning of oh, something yes, much bigger. Yeah, and, and what this uh, Gainesville State was used to, they, they, when they would play a team, they would give them uh, goodie bags, you know, with desserts and them, or, you know, little things of encouragement like that after a game, or, you know, maybe give them a, a Gatorade and a burger or something like that. So people would do nice things with them, but no one had ever gone anywhere near this level. And as a result, uh, everywhere they went after that, uh, what I call the faith treatment happened. <laughs> they started treating them like uh, faith did. Even in basketball season, uh, which they was you know started two or three weeks later for them, they were getting the same type of thing where fans are root for them. So the next football season, fans are root for them. Uh, I talked to a uh, coach at a prison school in Tennessee, a very similar school in Tennessee, and um, he told me that he had been there thirty something years. And, and all of a sudden, one night, this team just rolled out a bunch of fans for his players. He had no idea where it came from. He said, I'd never seen anything like it. And it turned out that they had heard what had happened here in Tennessee. Uh, I talked to people in Florida who had similar um, stories and just and it raised an awareness of, of what can happen. And even in the town of Gainesville, where this, where this uh, prison, prison facility is, each year the, the kids would um, be on a float for the Christmas parade, the town Christmas parade. And that year, uh, the people from the school noticed just a huge difference in how the community reacted to them. The, the people in the community were more mindful of them and had heard what had happened inside the walls, uh, inside the fences, and how the kids had responded to it. And so at that Christmas parade, even just the kids on that float were experiencing the community people reaching out to them that they never had before. So, I mean, it, it completely turned a lot of things around, even within the Texas Youth Commission, which runs the prison system for teenagers. You know, I, I talked to people from there and, and follow-up stories and things, and it just sent an energy throughout the whole state uh, youth prison system of what can happen. And so um, facilities all across the state, people start just volunteering to be mentors or coming to, to, to speak encouragement to kids. So it was... I mean, things just happened immediately that these places had never experienced before, and it was all because of that one game. This is so good. You know, we hear today about, uh, oh, football players can't bend the knee, can't can't say a prayer before the game. We hear all of this bad news, and and we're constantly inundated with this. We have now just a tremendous story. And, Jordan, I have a question on the other side of the bottom of the hour break here I want to ask you. And that's kind of how this affected uh, the other people. What you saw 
um, uh, uh, that, that took place with the uh, with the young men around you as well, how that affected them. I'm I'm really interested in that. Um, so on the other side, we're going to be getting back our guest David Thomas, author, Love and Books, best-selling author, and of course, man of the uh, football game, the uh, uh, subject to remember why you play. At least one of the players, definitely. Jordan Donington, going to be right back. Stay with us. HagmanReport.com. That's our website, Hagman and Hagman for show information. Folks, subscribe to our YouTube channel and follow us on social networking. And don't forget, Real Tech Eric. Right here from our radio and television studios located in beautiful northwest Pennsylvania. You know, um, it's, it's seldom do we talk about the life changing events. Okay. Now we've got an author, David Thomas, writing about, uh, wrote 11 books, but just three of his books talking about the life changing events and, and how, you know, each and every one of us, I, I really believe we can get kind of a, a, a sense, if you will how things can change us positively. And even with all of the crud we're facing, and we're facing a ton of crud. I mean, it's coming at us like, you know, you know, like a storm, right? Well, yeah. Look at, look at, at, at what things, uh, you know, what, what is taking place. And, and certainly you can manage your events in such a way. Well, just ask. Jordan Dunnington, just ask David Thomas. But before we get back to them, I want to ask you, folks, 14% return. How do you like that on average? I mean, not promised, you know, certainly. But precious timber, my goodness. We had uh, Alex Wilson on not too long ago talking about precious timber. This is a revolutionary uh, way to invest your money. And and I got to tell you, uh, I really researched the heck out of this. Now, you know, you can... You can have all sorts of stuff in your 401k. And, and one of the things that I thought was just an amazing thing, if I could, if I had a money tree put in my 401k, I would, but this is almost as good. Uh, precious timber offers investments in timber. And of course, it's a, a self-directed 401k as well. But, but coconuts, think about this. Worldwide demand in making coconuts is one of the highest yield, I'm sorry, worldwide demand is making coconuts one of the highest yielding cash crops. And I had to really research that to, to really believe that because how often do you see a coconut? But it's true. And in fact, as a matter of fact, Coke and Pepsi and many high worth, high net worth individuals have invested in coconuts as a growth investment for long-term income. Direct ownership of fully managed coconut acreage is now available to accredited investors. And folks, it could yield as much as 15% per year. I kind of understated it at 14. This triple bottom line opportunity generates a a measurable beneficial social and environmental impact along the along side an attractive financial return that lasts for up to 60 years think about that as you're doing your investment planning 
You can help Precious Timber create jobs, educate children, protect our planet by growing coconuts on prime farmland close to the tropical Costa Rican border. Qualified, accredited investors should go to ProfitsInCoconuts.com. That's right, I said it, ProfitsInCoconuts.com. You can call them to 855-888-6288 to receive more information on that. This announcement, by the way, does not constitute either an offer to sell securities or a solicitation of an offer to purchase. Just saying now, that's the legalese in case you're wondering. Offering made by prospectus only. Again, call 855-888-6288 or visit ProfitsInCoconuts.com. And, and let me just add this. Alex Wilson, a fantastic man. you got to go back and listen to that interview with Alex Wilson. And those people of um, looking for solid investments, this is it. I mean, uh, it surprised me when I looked at it. What a, what a fantastic opportunity. Again, um, ProfitsInCoconuts.com. ProfitsInCoconuts.com. Joe, kick, kick it back to you. I, I left hanging in that question with, with Jordan about yeah. how that affected others. So, Well, we can start there. We're talking uh, with author David Thomas and uh, a guest that he's brought on, Jordan Dunnington. And before the break, you asked the question about how the, uh, what was it that you asked that, how his experience affected the other players on the team? Uh, so we'll turn that right to you, Jordan. How did your experience, uh, positively or, or negatively, or the, 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 the actual, the actual experience, uh, yeah. affect the players around you, whether it was positively or neg- negatively? And did you receive backlash? Um, I think on on there there are two ways uh two things to say um in terms of the experience that I had and the experience that uh the players had and I think uh, it's it's representative really of of how people can react to to something like this um on one hand as players we realize wow we were part of something that is really cool that that has inspired other people um, and like I said in, in the in the beginning, uh, it really showed that some of the principles that that faith was teaching and that our coach was trying to get across to us uh, really could have a positive effect. Um, and I think amongst ourselves, it helped us recognize how blessed we were um, to be in an environment one where you had a school that was at all times. Um, Speaking to your capabilities that at all times was um, giving you um, positive principles um, um, and infusing those with faith and being able to have something to rely on um, at all times being able to to have um, the message that they were trying to impart um, spoken and encouraged to be worked out in your life um, but on the other hand, when when you're grateful, but one of the things about uh, gratefulness is it causes you to recognize um, what could have happened with, without that blessing. Um, and when I think something that stuck with me these days as I've grown up and and and, and look back on on that experience is 
PBS did a, um, a story about the school-to-prison pipeline and how a lot of students who are out of school um, and have disruptive behavior, they're usually sent back to the place of their angst and unhappiness, which is home environments and their neighborhoods. Um, the negative influences come. Um, they become stigmatized and then drop out of school altogether and many times go on to commit crime. And uh, it's, it, it made me specifically see um, that I was blessed to be able to grow up in an area and be around uh, a group of people um, who encouraged me to stay on the right path. But on the second hand, you also see that for, for the Gainesville State players, and for us, it taught us, hey, because you have been given this blessing, because you've been given this opportunity, um, because you're recognizing there's a reason to be grateful, give to somebody else. Um, let your faith express itself through love. Um, don't sit back silently and wish them well. Don't, um, don't not act. Do something. Um, add some faith to your action or add some action to your faith. Uh, because if we had all just talked, uh, we used to have this uh, moment every Thursday before the games where we would sit back and um, the team would go around in the locker room and we would share quotes or we would share scripture or we would share commitments on what we were going to do that Friday. Um, but if we had taken moments like that and never acted on them, then um, you wouldn't have the impact that you had. If Coach Hogan had said, well, this is a great idea, maybe next time, if, if uh, Coach Dave had said, woken up at 3 a.m. in the morning, like you said, and said, well, this is a great idea, I could see this working out, and, and then didn't go, follow through, um, if those fans didn't show up like they did in, in huge amounts of support, um, then it would have just been a great idea, um, and it, it's, it's great to see that we're able to see faith worked out. Um, the other hand, you asked in, in terms of positive and negative, sometimes there, there was some pushback from, from students or who thought, well, maybe this was um, a bit too much and why did we have to, to do this? And I think that that just comes um, with, with acting from your heart. Um, sometimes people may not completely understand uh, motives, but for the people who are there and the people who um, really were able to walk away having learned something, you can't argue with the fact that um, that affected all of our per perspectives um, in a positive way. You can't argue that it affected um, those Gainesville State players and, and their perspective to the point where the coach even spoke to the fact that the culture was different. Um, and you can't argue with the fact that, that there were people around the country who decided to act in a positive manner because it because of that as well. Um, so God, God can make all things good, and that is a cool story to learn from that. Yeah, Jordan Amen. talks about putting your faith into action. I think um, something that's gotten lost over the years since this happened is that there were two cases earlier in the season where uh, somebody related to the football program obeyed what God wanted, and there were results that happened. And I, and I think that positioned... Uh, the coaches and the players perfectly for this Gainesville State game and, and what it became. But there was, uh, at the beginning of the season, they played a, um, 
they played a team, and um, number 74 on our team was somebody they had trouble stopping. I'm sure Jordan remembers this. And two days later, he died in a car accident. And the following week, um, the players, the faith players, went to their head coach and said, we'd like to attend the funeral as a team. And so he then got on the phone with the other team's head coach and said, you know, would this be okay? My guys want to do this. What do you think? And he said, sure. And so Jordan and his teammates, and this was a, a completely a player-led thing, which is they were following what their, their coaches had modeled for the years they'd been to school. On their own, they came up with this idea to go attend a funeral and show their support for a team that they had displayed. And then also about that same time, there was a team from uh, the New Orleans area that flew into the Metroplex to play a game, and that was the weekend that Hurricane Katrina hit. And so they were delayed in getting home. And the faith parents did a good job of stepping forward and coming up with housing and providing meals for them. They had like a barbecue dinner, and the faith players um, sat down with them and shared a meal and talked and got to know them. And so while they were dealing with this uncertainty of Hurricane Katrina back home, the faith players got to see what it was like when they gave a little bit of themselves into someone who was in kind of a tough spot at that time. And, I mean, I'll ask, if you don't mind me asking Jordan a question, Jordan, do you, do you remember those two things, and do you remember how that really seemed to set you all up for what happened with the Gainesville State game? Yeah, I do. Um, I, I remember um, – I, I could be getting his name wrong. It may have been – Shane Allen, and I think it was, yes, that was his name. Yeah, number seventy-four. Mm-hmm. And um, I remember going to that to that funeral, and we were all dressed up in our jerseys, I believe, and we just stood silently and, and paid paid our respects. And um, I, I I remember that because it, it was it was it was odd to me how many people were really just moved that we were there. And we didn't say, say anything. We just showed up. Um, and Coach Hogan will, will call that the ministry of presence, of, of being there for somebody um, in grief. Because sometimes in grief there's not a lot to say. Um, and even the things that we do say, um, I mean, this is what everybody says. So sometimes it's better just to, to be silent and, and to show the support um, in that way. And then with the... Uh, the team from New Orleans, um, it was, I forgot which, which hurricane it was, but it was, it was, it was uh, Katrina. Um, but I, I do remember that, um, we helped out there as well. Um, and that was, that, that was, that was a positive experience, uh, because we were able to, to sit sit up there with and talk to to the players and talk about where where they had been and talk about their their experiences. So um, we were able to see uh, we were able to to see use those as building blocks. So that way, when we did something for Gainesville, it didn't seem out of place or um, really off the wall. We knew that this was something that that they just kind of did. Uh, and we were glad that authenticity came across um, and that there were actually authentic results from that moment. Okay. Uh, I got a a question that uh, doesn't pertain uh, necessarily to you, but what we're seeing in the NFL, this uh, divide with between the players about the national anthem, the standing, um, 
and we see a huge or a huge a significant drop in the ratings um and many of people attribute that to the disrespect or the so-called disrespect that players are showing during the national anthem in your experience in sports and being part of of teams and and having that the team pride and uh the freedom to to go and uh you know put it all out on the field is what would you say to the people out there in the NFL who are making these astronomical amounts of money uh and taking these political stands uh is there a place for it one two uh do they make a point or three is there something completely wrong with the uh players in the atmosphere inside of the NFL today Are you asking me or are you asking Coach Dave? No, I, I, I wanted to get your take on it, and then we can get the coach's take. Okay. Um, yeah, I, I think um, we're definitely at an interesting time, and I think it, it really goes back um, to that. It's funny that you asked that the faith expressing itself through the love. I don't, I don't know if Kaepernick is a Christian or not. Um, but I do know that, that he loves the people who are being affected by what he's kneeling for. Um, and so he is, he's making authentic action. And like you said, authenticity breeds authenticity, whether that's positive or negative. Um, he's being authentic and expressing himself and saying, Hey, um, I, I love the people who are being affected, um, through, through what's happening in this country. And, um, and I think that that has bred the authentic reaction um, from both sides. Um, and I, I specifically think that if you are blessed, kind of how I said, we, we were grateful to, to not be in the same position as a lot of the Gainesville State players. Um, but just because um, we were blessed to be in a different Situation socioeconomically, uh, spiritually, um, uh, education-wise, um, didn't mean that we couldn't still look past the exterior and speak to their capability. Um, and I think just because an NFL player is removed from some of the ordinary things that happen um, to people, um, and specifically on this topic of um, police respect and police brutality both sides um, I think that he he still can can make that that statement um, because he is grateful um, that he has made it to that level and he just um, wants to express that gratitude um, through through love and those who are being affected Mr. Police go ahead yeah um First of all, I will always stand for for the national anthem. I love my country. I, I appreciate the the uh, ability that God gave me to live here, and I will never take this for granted. This country for granted. Um, that being said, uh, um, people have the right to do what they want when the anthem is played, and if they choose to take a knee or turn their back or whatever, that is their right to do it. You know, and then people have the right to then talk about what has happened you know and we've gotten into a country you know to stay in this country where everybody talks about their right but not everybody else's right so if you disagree with Colin Kaepernick 
you need to recognize that he has the the um right to do that and i do believe that regardless of what he's doing i know there is a problem that he is trying to bring attention to and there there's a problem that needs to be addressed um how we can do it is different matters and things like that and the people who support Colin Kaepernick need to also understand that people have the right to express their opinion about what he's done. We just need to get off this, I have my right, and forget about other people's rights. Uh, and I know these are, these are fresh numbers on uh, viewership being down, and I think having been in the media for a long time, I haven't had a chance to really look at them, but there's a possible trap there uh, that I'd like to express caution about. I, I want to know how they, they yeah. can attribute... The, the drop in viewership to the uh, protest of the anthem. Maybe they can, maybe they can't. I don't know. I have not heard how they can attribute that because I know that on broadcast, uh, the large majority of games do not show the anthem. You know, so this is, um, people are not, you know, turning off a TV during the anthem or because of what someone's doing the anthem, you know, except for maybe your national broadcast. So I, I do have a little bit of caution there on those stats, and they, they may be correct and the interpretation may be correct, but I haven't seen yet how they arrive at uh, saying that's the cause of it. So I just do want to express that that's a possible yeah. trap statistic. Yeah, and, and you should know, given your, obviously, given your experience. Um, but <clears throat> alternatively, yeah, excuse me, alternatively, what would, uh, cause that or, or are you questioning the stat itself um, um I'm, I'm questioning uh if, if there's a direct connection and i'm not speaking from doubting it i'm just saying i haven't seen it seen how they've determined that there's a direct connection at all uh, that's all okay. i'm saying uh, is just, you know how, how do you know that's the case and if you say well you know because of this and i say okay then that is true i just haven't heard that expressed yet so you know, the, the skeptical journalist in me still, you know, kind of wants to see. Because unfortunately, today facts get just used to promote somebody's side, and it could it could be very easily done to say, "Oh, viewership's down, maybe because the games aren't good this year." You know, it might be just that. Uh, but someone can make that statistic say what they want it to say. They, you know, there's an old expression: "Statistics don't lie, but statisticians do." <laughs> so, um, so I, I don't doubt the statistic or the the uh, the connection. I just kind of want to see how that's being drawn is all and then you know okay. before i before i go to a conclusion yet okay gotcha and just to wrap up uh our time with you tonight uh, uh you're the author of 11 books three we talked about uh, uh called for life uh, uh remember why you play of course is what we're talking about right now and of course uh, uh we must not forget seal of god about the uh navy seal but in wrapping up this segment now in the in the show, oh man, uh, such feel good things. Such uh, you you've been involved in so many um, positive things. Mm-hmm. What here in, in the last few minutes we have, and we got five minutes. And, 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 and um, Jordan, if you want to jump into here with your final thoughts, give 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 us your give our audience your final thoughts about. Where we're at today as a nation, everything you've experienced, Jordan. I know you're a young man, but you've got a you, you've got a sense about things too, uh, given your experiences. But uh, uh, Jordan, I'll tell you what. We'll start off with you. Where, where we are as a nation, given your experiences, give us a give us about a, a ninety second synopsis about uh, where you think we are, where we're headed, and what we can do about it. And then I'm going to toss it. Through, and then we'll we'll get handed over to Dave to, to close. Um, I think 
uh, two two verses come to mind. One is hope deferred uh, makes the heart weak. Uh, I think that there are different um, different different sections within the country where they their hope has been deferred. Whether um, you're talking to people who uh, in the workforce as, as things are changing, you feel like things they're not being um, that they're being left behind or not being properly. Um, given the opportunities um, to change with this pace of the economy or didn't experience the same um, success as others or those who feel um, like uh, socially um, we should be farther along than we should be. Um, I think that there are a lot of people who's hard to read, and especially with the election, I, I know everybody is tense on both sides. Um, and it, it kind of just gives you that anxiety inside. Um, and, and then the second one, uh, without vision, the people perish. And I think that that speaks to uh, right now America is, is clamoring for vision um, and for a steady vision, and we're unsure about our vision. Um, but I, I do know that there's one person who has 2020 vision, um, and, and that's Christ. And, um, and I think that the people who set the vision moving forward will be the church as long as we can grapple with the issues that the that the world is dealing with but grapple with them through um, um, a faithful lens um, and then we can we can start setting the vision and that I think that's how you have change and, and still hoping people absolutely Amen. well said well said yeah George are you 25 or 26 now how old are you now uh, just turned just turned 26 last Thursday Happy we birthday, need Jordan in national birthday. leadership. We need Jordan in national <laughs> leadership, don't we? We, yeah. we need. Um, I mean, he answered a question better than I could, and I'm a little older than 26. <laughs> uh, <laughs> leave it at that. Um, but we need people like Jordan, young people who have that biblical worldview, who have been trained up to. Um, I mean, not brainwashed. They've been taught how to think, and you can tell from the way Jordan has spoken over this past hour. He was brought up and taught how to think for himself, uh, and he thinks through a biblical worldview, and that's what we need. We need people. I mean, sports is such a huge platform. Um, I, I love sports so much. My kids play sports. My daughter's a college volleyball player. My son's a high school athlete, and sports has been so important for us as parents because it's opportunities to parent uh, into their lives that um, – that sports has given us and I've seen this faith football program you know since 2007 I'm now a part of it you know my son plays there and I'm a part of the coaching staff only on Friday nights I'm not a coach but I help them out uh, sports is such a huge platform and we need to take advantage of that uh, you mentioned Colin Kaepernick you know he, he has he recognizes this platform you know he's taking he's using it that's fine that's great Tim Tebow has done the same thing. That's great. You know, thank you for Tim Tebow. You know, thank you for what he's done. Athletes need to, to see that, but mainly coaches, because they're the ones who have the kids under them at the most formative years in their lives. And they have so much opportunity to pour in the kids and to direct them and steer them. Sometimes those kids don't get fathering at home. And they may even have a father at home and still not get it. But coaches have that opportunity. So we need coaches like Coach Hogan who will help us develop kids like Jordan Dunnington, who's not a kid anymore, but was a kid who had great parents who partnered with their school and their coaches uh, to bring them up to be a leader. And um, we just need a bunch of Jordans. And uh, to, to give a very short answer to the question, 
uh, I have a little saying that uh, I wish more people would use, and it, it skirts controversy. But you know that's okay. I'm not. I don't mean it. Uh, I'm not trying to play with the controversy. I'm just taking advantage of of a phrase that's very popular now. But my motto, and I want people to to capture this and share, it, is every soul matters. If we were to take the perspective that every soul matters, then skin color wouldn't matter anymore. I mean, me and Jordan are different races, and we can talk about anything. We have. I mean, there's a big age gap, but we can sit down at lunch and talk about great things and life things that we have because there's a mutual respect because we know I don't see Jordan as, as uh, a life. I see Jordan as a soul that, that God created and Christ died for. And we were to see more people through that lens. If we were to just say to ourselves, every soul matters, things would change drastically in a hurry. I don't think we can top any of that, whether it be Jordan Dunnington. Thank you so much, my friend, uh, my young friend. Uh, thank you so much for your gift of time tonight and your story. And, and Mr. David Thomas, author. author of 11 books. David Thomas, yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, Go figure. I can't. And you know. in the book we were oh. just talking about in this hour, Remember Why You Play, also called for life, as well as Seal of God. Yeah, that's right. So thank you both for, uh, you, you've actually closed us out. So thank you both for, uh, your time on the Hagman and Hagman Report. Mr. Thomas. Sure. Thank you. Always uh, welcome back. God bless you both. Thank you so much. You too. Thank you all. All right. Folks, that'll do it for us tonight. Now tomorrow we've got, um, that was was a great coverage. uh, Yep. 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 Uh, Some additional things. Joe. Guest Trey Smith. Yeah. Now, Joe, tomorrow night. We're going to lay out some very interesting observations. As a, an emailer sent to me, a listener sent this to me, with the WikiLinks, the accusations against Assange, perhaps, perhaps San Francisco-related. More on that later. Until tomorrow. God bless.